This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. It's October 30th, 2016, and this is the fourth episode of Psychology is Dead. I'm your host, Quentin Moody, and since the last time we've recorded, there's been quite a few shakeups. Main one being that this is actually our first episode on the Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed. So, this is kind of our introduction to the feed and everyone that is subscribed to it, that listens to it. Um, so that's the first major thing there. Um, with me on this episode, I have one of the top guys at Place to Be Nation, Pro Wrestling Only. Um, with me is Chad. Chad, how are you? Doing good, Quinn. How's it going tonight? Um, weird. This is actually <laughs> like this is like the weirdest thing I've had to do in a while. I never expected that I would have a show on Pro Wrestling Only or the Place to Be Nation feed since you guys like, you know, renamed it recently, but this is um weird. This is like a shock to the system in a few ways. <laughs> <laughs> now, qu- now quickly, how long have you been on uh, Pro Wrestling Only? I know you've you've been on there a pretty good while, right? You've earned your stripes. Oh no, 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 uh, no, yeah, no, no, no. I no. thought you came on well at the beginning of uh, Greatest Wrestler Ever, right? Mm, no, 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 not the beginning. Oh no. Oh okay. Because <laughs> that was like a two-year project, wasn't that? Yeah, yeah. It was. I think it started uh, maybe yeah uh, fall of two thousand. 13, 14, somewhere around there. No, 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 definitely not. I, I know mean, it took years off my life <laughs> to complete the project. Oh, no, I've only been here. I've only, like, used the forum for, like, maybe since, like, the middle of 2015 or maybe maybe earlier than that. But then again, it's like, for certain people that have already been there for a while, like, you know, I'm not even a blip on their radars. So that's, like, a weird thing. I'm on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, but I'm like one of the most. Like, no one knows who I am, so. <laughs> well, that can be a blessing and a curse in some regards. <laughs> but um, like I said, fourth episode of Psychology is dead. Um, if you haven't listened to the other shows when they were on the Wrestling with Words Audio Network, um, pretty much the premise was talking about the nuances, the little things obviously the namesake psychology in this thing called professional wrestling we all talk about it we love to talk about the little things that grab us in our wrestling match the things that stand out to us the little insignificant details the nitpicks things like that and there really isn't a lot of shows out there in this big podcast sphere in this bubble that actually covers psychology and wrestling so it just seemed like a good place to put a show because it's something that affects all of us when we watch it's something that we all think about when we watch so it just seemed fitting to have a show about it um the first episode of psychology is dead was um with um timothy from lucha undead and from this week in wrestling it was called um the arts of escalation and commitment 
The second episode featured um from wrestling culture Dylan Hales, and that was called The Art of the Tournament, where most of the episode was focused on the Scenic City Invitational. And the third episode um featured my friend Brock, a writer for Wrestling with Words, um, host on um Sports Entertainment Shrinks over on the Wrestling with Words Audio Network. And that was called The Art of Death, where we focused on death matches. This episode is titled The Art of Storytelling. And this episode is important to me because in any medium of entertainment, whether it be films or books or television or even this thing called pro wrestling, storytelling is a big part in the appeal of it, a big part in why we watch. So... This episode is focused on some of our favorite stories in wrestling, some of our favorite feuds, guys that we think thrive in situations where they're meant to tell a long-term story, or guys where they actually thrive when they have some when they have some purpose in what they're doing. Um, so I guess the question I have for you right off the bat, Chad, is why do you think storytelling and wrestling is so important um well i mean for me like it's watching a match is so subjective and i think us in our little i guess our bubble our niche within a niche we look at different things i think we watch wrestling through a different lens than the majority of even uh wrestling fans sometimes some of the wrestling fans that i interact with that uh are on our facebook chats for a place to be nation stuff like that like i know i operate and view wrestling through a different lens that's not to say i'm superior or you know i'm a smarter wrestling fan it's just uh just a different way of looking at it so in that kind of subjective sense i would say storytelling to me is the key ingredient to whether a match is good or not kind of in its simplest terms if there's a good story there i can really excuse a lot of flaws in execution to still say a match was successful and likewise if there's not much story there and just a quick example of that's the six-man tag from bola night two um, which I, have you have you watched that match, Quentin? Yes, I have. Okay, so I mean, I think that match is a ton of fun. Um, I really enjoyed watching that match, but again, kind of in my serious wrestling fan uh, voice, I would never give a match like that five stars yeah. or say like this is one of the greatest matches I've ever seen, just because that's not my type of match. Now, if you view uh, a match on how much you kind of mark out with the moves, on the athleticism of the moves, on the uh, kind of state-of-the-art engagement of the crowd, because that crowd in Reseda certainly was into that match, hardcore, um, then fine. I mean, that, I, I can understand why people rank that match five stars, but in this uh, psychology of storytelling stigma that we're working with tonight, I didn't see enough storytelling within a match like that to say, oh yeah, this was one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. Do you think that sometimes, I guess since us in in this bubble of watching wrestling with such a critical eye, do you think sometimes because we're searching for something more um, with more substance, that we don't 
allow ourselves to get lost in just mindless fun sometimes like even if there isn't a story do you think there's like this some kind of meta psychology in some of these matches where the point of the story is that there is no story like do you think that sometimes because right. we're so critical that we kind of miss the point on some of that stuff that that can happen and i would say that's a give and a take that like for me myself i know i forego maybe some enjoyment of certain matches um such a comedy i think's a really good example of that in a lot of ways uh like some of the comedy nuances stuff uh that happens a lot in progress i mean that that stuff really pops the crowd that crowd's totally engaged I read reviews on those shows, and people compliment that. Um, so I, I, I understand kind of the perception that, oh, you know, I'm just a, you know, a, a real anal wrestling fan that just doesn't want to have fun, and I'm being way too serious and analyzing the match. Somebody like Johnny Sorrow uh, that hosts a reaction show in This Week in Wrestling, Titans Wrestling, he is somebody like that. He just goes in looking for fun. Uh, for most of that's kind of the way he views wrestling so i understand that i may miss out on some stuff but i do feel like uh when it does really connect because i'm looking that intently for something like when something connects and i'm able to connect the dots and kind of find the enrichment of the story and the long-term storytelling that the wrestlers are trying to tell uh, when that really works, I, I do feel like I have kind of that deeper satisfaction of, oh, okay, I understand what happened here. And uh, it's a real kind of enriching experience to me as a wrestling fan. So as, uh, to me, it's a give and take. I mean, I, I certainly think there's been things that I've sort of missed out on by being kind of a fuddy-duddy uh, wrestling fan, for sure. Now, this may not, well, this may, may be something that you weren't, exactly prepared for because this is kind of a I guess question that spawned while you were just talking there but what is like I guess the first story you can remember being a wrestling fan that really grabbed you now obviously we all have different starting points when it comes to our wrestling fandom me I started watching wrestling as a kid it grabbed me and I haven't looked back now I probably can't even remember specifically the story that made me like wrestling, but one of the stories I remember first would probably be Matt Hardy versus Edge from 2005. That'd be one of the first stories in wrestling I remember where past the surface level, what I just liked watching cool dudes do cool moves in the ring, it was something that felt intense and real and hateful and spiteful and all these other, you know, synonyms that go along with like words like, you know, venomous and hate. It was something that you could feel. So is there something from your fandom and wrestling that you remember from an early age that stuck out to you? Yeah, one of my earliest memories, period, is Earthquake squashing Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and um, uh, it's kind of funny to talk about that now um but i was four when that angle happened and uh I, I my parents like there's home videos and stuff i've seen when i was two and a half three years old for christmas i got some wrestling figures 
I don't, I don't remember any of that. Apparently, I started watching wrestling at a really young age, around like two and a half and three years old. I don't remember none of that. But uh, like I said, I do certainly remember when Earthquake squashed Hulk Hogan. They had the uh, the great music video, I'll Be Your Hero, uh, with, with Hulk making his triumphant return. I pleaded my mom to get SummerSlam 1990. She finally relented. Uh, and I saw Hulk Hogan achieve his uh, count-out victory and uh, probably marked out like the little four-year-old I was. But, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean something kind of silly like that. I mean, that left a lasting impression. And I do think if you now look back at some of the feuds Hogan was engaged with uh, throughout the 80s, kind of versus the monsters, that was a situation where, of course, he was going to film in a movie, but... Uh, he d- did. They did make uh, earthquakes seem very dangerous and some sort of peril that Hogan hasn't faced because he re- he sent Hogan out of action, yeah. and that hadn't really happened before. So so there was some pretty deep storytelling there. So when we were setting this episode up, I had told you to pick two feuds or two stories in wrestling that you felt the need to talk about obviously you have your two we're gonna get to those in a few seconds um the two that i picked um were Sami Zayn versus adrian neville from 2014 and the second one i picked was the ricky choshu versus all japan feud when he invaded um we'll talk we'll talk about those um whenever we get to them but i guess could you give the audience some your picks so my picks, uh, I, I feel like we kind of went on the same wavelength with one uh, fairly obvious example, and then I would say kind of one under the radar. Uh, mine may be a little more under the radar than yours, um, but but my under the radar pick was Jerry Lawler versus Snowman uh, from 1990 USWA, and uh, then my kind of more obvious pick is uh, Masawa versus Kabashi. Uh, boy, that went from 1990 to really 2007. But now I'm kind of considering just the singles matches. So uh, we'd, we'll say from 1990 to 2003. Okay, before we actually even talk about the feuds, one the one thing that stuck out to me when you chose Kabashi versus Masawa is because, well, the feud that I always think about when it comes to All Japan, when it comes to the 90s, is Kawada versus Masawa. Right. Because that always seemed like the more intense rivalry with Kawada being jealous and Masawa being the ace and Kawada always trying to get the one up on Masawa once their tag team you know once they just once they stopped being friends essentially and Kawada right. became a dick so that's the feud that I always like thought of when it came to um, 90s All Japan. So, what made you cho- um, choose Kabashi versus Masawa? Yeah, I, I think Masawa versus Kawada is kind of that gut, you know, knee jerk reaction feud that you'd pick. Um, and that's a feud I really enjoy as well. Um, but for me, and I hope we can kind of we can kind of unpack and articulate it more. But uh, for me, I've always preferred Masawa and Kabashi. And I think on the surface level, uh, some people may say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, that was a great kind of athletically gifted feud. 
that featured some moments of uh, some classic matches, but then also some excessive head dropping and kind of a devaluing of the Kings Road style uh, by the end, where it was riddled with excess. And um, but but I hope I hope I can convey that while I don't disagree with that uh, vantage point completely i do think there's some holes in that and i uh, hope to kind of articulate that over the course of our discussion okay the first one that i actually wanted to talk about in depth was the jerry lawler versus snowman feud that you picked yes um now i'm not very adept when it comes to memphis i have some knowledge of the 80s but once we hit the 90s i know nothing so, this was something that caught me off guard because it's something that I never knew actually existed in the first place. So, this was 1990, USWA, and since you picked it, I'd like you to explain, I guess, the gist of the feud, and after that, we can just go from there. Okay. So, I'll, I'll say just kind of a basic backstory with me with this feud is... Uh, Oh, I'd say starting, it's been about five years now, four or five years ago, I started watching uh, the 1990s footage. Uh, Me, uh, Charles, who goes by the username Loss at uh, ProWrestlingOnly.com, he's the administrator there, uh, watched the footage. A couple of us really kind of plowed through the 1990s. Um, and this was a feud I'd never heard of until I started watching 1990 footage. Uh, it kind of has a, I guess, an underground uh, hype tip surrounding it. But yeah, once I started watching the 1990 stuff, I had no idea about it. And it kind of blew me away when we watched it. So the basic gist is Jerry Lawler is, uh, is a heel. He's the uh, unified champion, heel champion. And he's coming out there. Uh, the angle kind of starts pretty uh, in, in an inauspicious way where he's cutting a promo. Uh, this is the time where USWA had the Memphis and also the Dallas uh, stuff, too, from the holdover from World Class where Jerry Jarrett was running that. So he's talking about a match with Kerry Von Erich coming up. Uh, is His kind of basic heel promo that he was doing throughout 1990 and Jerry Lawler, up to that point in 1990, USWA, he did some entertaining stuff. There's a, a really great segment called Dr. Lawler from February where he actually takes a steroid test uh, on air and then dares Sting and Hulk Hogan to do the same. Um, and come to one of those great grandstanding challenges that you know would never happen, but uh, to I, you know to prove the USWA had clean wrestlers and so forth. So there was kind of some entertaining stuff like that, and he would also come out and berate the fans with some quick-witted responses. Uh, so you had that with Hill Lawler, but I would say up to this point there wasn't kind of that money Memphis angle that you think about, like a Lawler versus Dundee. Uh, like a Lawler versus Rich and Idol, kind of those iconic Memphis angles. So he's given a pretty basic generic promo uh, about this match with Kerry Von Erich when all of a sudden Snowman comes out. And Snowman was somebody that was trained by Jerry Lawler in the early 80s, but was kind of, I guess, like a journeyman wrestler. He had some personal demons. 
uh, was kind of in and out and had been out of the promotion for a decent amount and never was pushed that heavily even when he was in the uh, USWA or Memphis. So Snowman, in the weeks leading up to this, had actually been on radio uh, as a shoot critiquing the hiring practices of uh, USWA and and basically taking a stand that they were uh, pretty racist in the way they were hiring, pr- uh, pushing their black wrestlers and so forth. Uh, so kind of uh, in a stroke of genius, the backstage narrative of this was Lawler decided to make an angle out of it. So, so the end result is Lawler is again given this very nondescript promo on Kayvon Eric. Snowman comes out, ends up cutting a really kind of racy promo against Lawler uh, that fires up the crowd, which the the studio crowd at the USWA throughout the eighties and nineties has had a very high African American contingent. Uh, so, so even though Lawler's a heel. Uh, he'd always had a lot of African-American support, fan support. And in a kind of unique tie-in, uh, later in 1998, when Lawler ran for mayor, he uh, kind of relied on the African-American vote even to uh, kind of have a chance. That was sort of what he was relying on uh, when he ran for mayor of Memphis. Um, so, so this is kind of an interesting, uh, in some ways, reversal of, of roles where... Yeah, now Lawler was being presented as a bigot to a degree. Uh, certainly Eddie Marlin, who was the on-screen matchmaker, uh, was presented that way. And he immediately comes out during this promo and interrupts Snowman and says he's not you know, a, a talent there and gets in their face. And they have a great back and forth. And it, it's just, a, to me, it's just the way it's filmed is so great. Because you get sort of these weird camera angles that you're not used to that make it feel more legit and real. And the storytelling is great because Snowman himself is not someone that's like a naturally uh, great promo. Kind of his his delivery and everything. It's a little uh, awkward, I would say. But just his presence and I would say his conviction in what he's saying really makes the angle for me and it really feels like uh that that he has some legitimacy to his claims here and and i think what the reason i picked this and the reason i would put this angle over the top is wrestling especially when it comes with race and and okay this this to me is i'm a i'm a straight white man talking so I know there's kind of a perception there of what do I know, uh, and I understand that, but I, I think it's safe to say that wrestling and race has been a uh, pretty reactive or embarrassing throughout its history, where it's it's either been uh, just a kind of embarrassing, racist, bigoted uh, culture that's been unfair to minorities throughout its history or it's simply been a reactive culture where okay junkyard dog was over for mid-south so bill watts decided let's have you know every african-american wrestler that comes through including the snowman at one point in the mid-1980s let's make him the new you know black star of the mid-south and it failed 
even in current day, you have something like the cabinet, which is a reactive angle where they're taking a knee and they're kind of playing off some of the Black Lives Matter counterculture that we're seeing uh, today. So it's it's a reactive measure. And I thought this angle actually was handled in such a way where it was uniquely progressive uh, which which I just think is pretty rare in wrestling history. So you actually mentioned one of the things I was going to talk about once you were done is that you actually brought up the history of race when it pertains to wrestling and being black. It's something that really is a touchy thing to talk about in any capacity, but when it comes to entertainment, it's really weird to get into say with wrestling um one thing that i wanted to talk about was the gangsters versus um smoky mountain feud right and i i believe that started in 1994 mm-hmm. 1994 yep and you have new jack and mustafa and d'lo brown and all of these guys coming in to smoky mountain and they're listening to public enemy and they have sunglasses on, and they're and they're bringing Malcolm X flags. And keep in mind, obviously, where they're doing this, they're doing in, they're doing this in Tennessee, and they're doing things and saying things where pretty much a lot of the promos that I watched, the gist of it was, "You're mad because you can't shut me up, because you can't beat me up, because you can't hang me, because you can't do these things to me," and that makes you mad. Right. And it's they're they're heels. Like they're making them out to be heels. One hundred percent heels. They're jumping people, they're doing all these things, and they're one hundred percent the heels. Now obviously that has to do with the demographic where you're, you know, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Obviously they're not gonna go over as a baby face act there. But it was just something where I'm not sure I'm not even sure if I disliked it. I really can't say. I would have to watch the entire thing, but it's one of those angles that I think is comparable to just the amount of tension and realism, and that was brought to um, to the feud. Do you um do you think that's a fair comparison with the Smoky Mountain and um, USWA? Yeah, I think that's a, a an interesting comparison because I agree. Like the tension is there. One difference I would say is, um. A lot of times with the gangsters and Smoky Mountain, uh, and this, again, I wasn't watching at the time, but just kind of watching it 15 years later when I was going through 1994 stuff, I I got the impression that a lot of kind of the reason they were a heel was kind of driven by underseated fear that I think Cornette knew his predominantly white fan base would have. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, these guys are, you, it, there was kind of that um, understated, like, if you saw these guys walking down the street, you might just, you know, go to the other side of the sidewalk. You know, they're the, you know their name is the gangsters, for Christ's sake. You know? Right, right. The, and, and, the, and the way just their attire um, and everything, uh, you know, they were kind of going into that militia uh, sort of mentality more. Um, so, so that's why, like, that's an angle that I think had some ups and downs. 
Uh, and I do think it's an, a unique comparison uh, to to this angle that we're talking about between Snowman and Lawler. But I would say there was more, I guess, heavy-handed forcefulness mm-hmm. uh, from the promotion in you will boo these guys because you're a racist yes. in that angle. Whereas with this one, I I do think you can kind of see both sides of the issue to a degree. Oh yeah, that's what I'm. That's actually why I enjoyed this angle so much between Lawler and Snowman because it felt like I guess in a like in a weird way like tasteful. Right. Like it wasn't bashing you over the head with either these black people are evil, you need to boo them. And it wasn't bashing you over the head with outward racist comments like, say, you would get from um, WCW when Ole Anderson was booking. And, like, um, the four horsemen are going around beating up, um, I forgot a jobber, I forgot what his name was, but he was black, and they're, like, bullying him and saying racist things to him. And it's not Triple H versus Booker T, where Triple H is saying people like you can't be champion and people of your kind and it's not bashing you over the head with outright bigotry either it's you know letting you choose what side of the um field you fall on and i think it came across in a way where in wrestling i love when people are justified in what they do right i love that when you give two people a platform you they can you, know, you can choose either side and which one you agree with, and I think that actually this was a great example of understanding where two people came from. Now, once we get later on into the feud, we'll explain that, I, that later on I think there was a definitive heel, or not even really because they switched it a lot from what I saw. But yeah, I I, I would say to me this is a feud that the first three to four weeks are groundbreaking. Yeah. After that, it takes a couple of turns and it loses a little steam. Yeah. Uh, it's it's still good, but yeah, the three to four weeks, uh, the first three or four weeks that we're talking about um, are great. And, and one thing, yeah, like you were saying with the justification, even somebody like Eddie Marlin, um, you know, this is an older white man that had been around the wrestling business for 30 or 40 years. Um, and it's, it's it, I mean, this is something I have to deal with on a, uh, on a daily basis, like in my real life. And it's not something that you really, I guess, enjoy thinking about. But, you, I mean, like my grandfather's still living now. He's 85 years old. I, I, don't, I wouldn't call him racist, but he certainly has different vantage points on life and situations than what I have. A different perception. Uh, now, whether that's right or wrong, it, it's it's tough for me to kind of judge, you know, because I wasn't around back in his day, so to speak. But it that's why with like Eddie Marlin, it's like I don't think he he definitely didn't think he was in the wrong ear. Uh, throughout the first part of this angle. And I don't necessarily know that he was because no man hadn't been, you know, a big superstar from a kayfabe sense elsewhere. Yeah, and then another thing to Marlon's point is that, again, he's not even a contracted guy. Right. And he's over here challenging their champion. 
so from a, as a promoter, like obviously you can see his standpoint from on screen. You're this random person that's coming into our studio, and you're interrupting the champion in the middle of a segment where he's calling out Kerry Von Eric. You know, why would you cave into his demands? Why right. would you even you know give him the time of day? So you see where his point is, but then, like you said, it just gives you reasons and reasons to understand everyone's um, point of view from there. The one thing I wanted to ask um, is that they kind of use the, we have had a black champion before, so your criticism isn't justified response. So, like, I guess, do you think that using that actually helped the angle in some ways, or do you think it didn't? Because I felt like relying on the fact that King Cobra was still there and bringing up other people in the promotion and bringing up the history there, I thought was actually a really great touch. Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, it's the next week, uh, you know, Marlon speaks to that in that initial promo, but then the next week, uh, because I I guess that ends by Snowman saying, you know, I'm going to buy a ticket to the Mid-South Coliseum to watch the match. He does. Him and Lawler kind of jaw jack at each other uh, at the Monday Night Memphis show. And then that's that. The next week, Marwin actually brings out King Cobra. Um, and I did think this was kind of a, uh, a, <laughs> a stroke of genius in some ways because what happens is uh, Cobra comes out. Marlin. Ask him, you know, have you have you found the USWA to have any racist practices or to be racist in any way? And uh, <laughs> and Cobra says no. And again, you got to re- realize who the crowd is. Um, and the crowd actually jumps all over him for saying that and ends up giving him a hard time. And this is where the snowman is making some disparaging remarks about. Uh, does he end up calling Cobra and Uncle Tom? I know that was definitely implied. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, again, risky, definitely. Maybe a tad over the line, but I did think it was an interesting way to go about things because I think they knew their crowd enough that they knew Cobra coming out there and saying that would get the crowd reaction that it got that oh come on man you're full of shit like that's not true at all um and it did and uh so i did think that was an interesting touch and a good way to kind of use somebody because yeah cobra was the champion earlier in the year and that's kind of when i table set at this whole feud you know that was part of the cobra run which really was you talk about like a nondescript angle. I mean, it was just like heel Jerry Lawler with his chain, hiding the chain, you know, kind of your generic Memphis one-on-one stuff that he did in the feud with Cobra. Uh, so to go from a feud like that, which is as rudimentary as you can get, to one that he's involved in now with Snowman that's so nuanced uh, and progressive was a, was a very interesting contrast with Cobra still being within the promotion. Now, we touched on how race and wrestling has kind of been a touchy subject, and most of the time it doesn't turn out well. No. So, uh, would you say that this is one of the 
maybe the sole example of race in wrestling actually being used well and not, you know, just being a black mark on the industry. I, I was I was trying to think of other examples. Um, I mean, I'm, unfortunately, I think since I've been a fan, it's such a WWF and WCW-oriented viewpoint where when I think about race and wrestling, you know, I think about New Day being hung out to dry and actually making something. I think about Triple H with Booker T and just uh, all the all the uh, stuff that happened there, and then he ends up pinning him. Um, you know, you think about stuff like Virgil, which is uh, 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 Virgil. That's yeah, some, so yeah. A, uh, so that's that's unfortunately. From me being a fan from, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, from like 1989, 1990 onward, I mean, those are the big big players uh, for racial type angles. Um, I don't know if like in the Carolinas and stuff like that in the 70s, uh, somebody like uh, Thunderpolt Patterson, whether whether they were able to make great strides. Um it's kind of weird, even when you think about some of the more successful uh, kind of pioneer black wrestlers like a, a Sailor Art Cruz. Uh, it, it's kind of tough to think what they were. I mean, it almost seems like they were presented as uh, your ethnic baby faces in some ways yeah. or, or special attractions um, instead of a more, I guess, you know, nuanced development of uh, racial relations so so as far as i know to me this is the best presentation of uh, race and wrestling that i can think of and that's why the storytelling to me again snowman not a great talker not a great wrestler we didn't even really touch on the matches yet uh, oh well, yeah we're gonna we were gonna get to that in a few because i didn't really think that the well outside of the first two matches because i actually thought they were actually a almost like brilliant in a way right but yeah i mean um the, what you were saying about snowman and like he was never an amazing talker amazing in-ring guy for this being my first exposure to snowman like i thought he came across as like a real person like right. a real person that is expressing genuine concerns <laughs> and issues he came across as authentic like he's not playing a character and when character. you're you know oh, when your yeah. name is the snowman you would you know you like the first assumption you would make about them is that you know a character but this didn't feel like a character this felt like a black man who had legitimate grievances with the company and wanted to write the ship in some ways and i thought he came across really well for like my first exposure to him yeah i mean i mean to me like it I don't. I don't know. It, it felt like this could be like some factory worker in any town in the USA that you know does a decent job. Sometimes he may be late. Sometimes he uh, may not give it his all. But but you know a decent worker. But because of the culture of the environment he works in, now he's going to a board of directors meeting or a union meeting or something, and and he's just speaking as a human as a person like i think you get that sort of connection from him that this this is not a character let's set aside the wrestling aspect of that and and in that way he flourishes 
because this is by far, you know, kind of his highlight of his wrestling career is this angle, uh, which is kind of unique in a way. But in some ways, I mean, to me, that's admirable that he does live a lasting impression. But, you know, me and you are here discussing this angle 26 years later. Yeah. And do we think race relations have gotten better or worse in America? I would say that's certainly up for debate. Um, and as we discussed, we don't know if there's been an angle that's conveyed race as well as this one has in the 26 years after this angle. So, so props to Snowman for, you know, I, I mean, I, I can see, like, again, he was shooting off on radio, like, yeah. legitimately. He had these grievances. So I can see somebody saying... You know, if he was approached by Lawler and Jarrett and whoever, we want you to come on board and do this angle. Him saying, you know, I have my principles. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to give in to your demands and stuff like that. But maybe he did say, hey, this is a way for me to kind of project my message to a larger audience, uh, which is interesting in of itself. And you mentioned the matches. And while we were mentioning, I guess, like, the historical significance of, I guess, what would be maybe probably the best racial angle in wrestling history, we didn't talk about the in-ring. And while I didn't think... Well, I think the in-ring kind of, like, teetered off towards the end and it went in the tip, like, what you would expect from the reputation that Memphis had for, I guess, wackiness and chicanery and things being, like, what would you, you would say overbooked. I thought the first match, and it only goes four minutes. Right. But it's, like, amazing to me. It's, they're not, like, trying any wrestling holds. They're not trying to, I guess, beat a better beat a better man um, on the mat. It's a fight. It's them throwing wild-looking punches and Jerry Lawler going for takedowns and Snowman sprawling and pushing and shoving each other into the corner and the referee not being able to separate them. It's only four minutes, but it's condensed in such a violent and real way where it was just a fight. It was two guys that wanted to get their hands on each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, this match happens three years before the first UFC. Um, and, and this feels to me like a UFC fight in a lot of ways. And, I don't. I, who knows whether Lawler watched any like Fujiwara or stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so, so I mean, shoot style. The first UWF was around from the uh, mid '80s onward, but I, I don't. Uh, to me, this has kind of a different feel, kind of that street fight feel. But like you said, yeah, there's there's a lot of really heavy punches. There is some sprawling, some takedowns, some takedown defense. Uh, it's a really interesting match, and it's packed with, uh, it, it, like you said, it's four minutes. So it's a very quick watch, but it's super intense, and I think that tells the story uh, amazingly that this is something different. I mean, again, everything about this angle says this this is a legitimate issue that these two guys kind of like the boys they are they're gonna settle it in the rink you know um and and get it out there and both were able to throw their punches and kind of in in some ways as the feud gets more ridiculous and fizzles out it's like well they they were able to get out their transgressions in the ring and then we uh moved onward 
Yeah, so the first two matches that they had, I think May 28th and June 4th were right. their first two matches, and the June 4th match was similar. And then I think the Snowman actually caught the referee. And yes, that's right. That ended that match. So those two matches, I thought, if they had just ended the feud off those two matches, I don't think it would have, you know, hurt anything. I think it probably would have been a better cap off to the story. But after that, we do get into more, I guess, what would be typical Memphis. Um, do you have anything to say on that one? Because it's like, I don't, I don't think the matches got bad, but it just feels like, well, after this, Lawler was like pretty much went full heel, became a complete bigot, um, started harassing a wrestler. Well, he wrestled him, I think. What was his name Freezer Thompson? Yes, Fraser Thompson. Um, yeah, so so I would say Lawler evolves as the angle goes on. Um, they introduced Leon Spinks, uh, the boxer who plays a prominent role towards the end. Um, but but realistically, this was sort of a springboard. Surprisingly enough, for Lawler to become a babyface after this angle. Um, it's like that's like, I, like I'm reading it and it's like that doesn't sound right it doesn't on the surface but I do think bec- basically this kind of after so so the end of this feud is uh, uh, Snowman is the unified champion he legitimately no shows um, and uh, I don't know if it's ever been confirmed or whatever. Eddie Marlin on the show basically comes out and says, uh, Snowman's no longer the champion. He's been stripped of the championship, blah, blah, blah. Allegedly, <laughs> let me say allegedly, um, Snowman actually did kind of trade the championship for cocaine. Uh, is a rumor out there? Don't Don't know. That's not confirmed and that again is kind of an interesting end i would say to this feud from a 2016 eye um only because that's sort of like the uh you know how judgmental then should you have been you get what i'm saying with that like like it's it's kind of like the michael brown chicken and egg situation where uh You know, the justification is if he wasn't in that spot, what would have happened? You know, that's the argument from the other side of that. Um, and so that's kind of like, well, you know, yeah, well, Snowman was doing these underhanded things. So it's good that we were judgmental against him. You know, it's kind of a justification for the means, yeah. which, again, brings in a lot of uh understated racism i would say that people still have uh to this day and certainly back then and is a uh interesting concept to think and almost and and, in a weird way i think an appropriate ending to the feud is kind of unsatisfactory on the surface it could be it's like well yeah so this this kind of again a real life situation happened and it brings about all these problems that still persist. 
but but the way they are able to mold Lawler from that into a face versus the Eddie Gilbert angle, which is another fantastic angle full of great storytelling. Um, like like I said before we start all this, like the first four to five months of 1990 USWA are fun, but from here on out through the end of the year, it's like buckle up because every week was amazing television to me. Uh, probably my favorite promotion of 1990 from here on out. Um, but but I think the key thing uh, that made Lawler a face in that angle versus Eddie Gilbert was the African-American core fans in Memphis accepting that he did at least give Snowman a say in this whole feud. Yeah. I really think that went a long way to then turning Lawler face uh, in Memphis. And this this was one of his last, I, w- I would say it's probably his last major face turn of his career. Because after that, any time he would turn heel or face, it was kind of, uh, just didn't have the uh, bravado or the, the uh, gravity of when this was his last big face run in Memphis. So I'm glad that you actually picked this angle because, like I said, not being well um, versed in Memphis wrestling knowledge, this was a real eye opener and show that you know while the majority of racial angles in wrestling are pretty bad and oftentimes embarrassing, that this one was handled in such a way where I think we actually got something worthwhile out of it and actually a really good piece of social commentary. Right. Um. Before we go into my pick, one question I wanted to ask: Who's a wrestler that you think that absolutely thrives when he's given a feud or a story to go off of? Because once we like go past a certain point in wrestling history, it becomes more about having great matches to a certain extent. Now, like now in wrestling, it's you can't, you can't you really can't name that many great feuds that have happened um i guess from the 2000s onward right so yeah. and there's a handful of guys i think do have great feuds that i'll talk about one of them later on but who are some guys that you think when you put them in a situation where they're going to tell a long-term story you're going to have a feud that that's where they thrive uh first when you asked me that question first guy that popped in my head was terry funk right um, I mean, he's somebody that you have the NWA champion funk. You have the amazing top baby face in Japan that doesn't speak English or Japanese funk. Um, I, I think he's he's great as a heel and really kind of getting across his madman, you know, character. Like in the feud versus Flair, there was a sense of danger there uh, that really made that feud kind of seen throughout the back half of 1989 and then as you get older the elder statesman funk is a uh, a really interesting piece of storytelling too where you just he was able to clamor so much sympathy uh, for him that you know every time he took a huge bump it, it was it was again it was like your father or grandfather like climbing a ladder to replace something on the roof you're just like <laughs> please you know dad let me do it and then he would take that bump and you'd be like oh why are you doing this to yourself every time um so so just a fantastic storyteller for 30 plus years um 
the one that I picked, and he's one of my favorite wrestlers ever, and I had to include him because I think he's the best baby face of the 2000s, um, is Sami Zayn. And the reason why I picked um, Sami Zayn versus Adrian Neville and not any of his other feuds, because realistically I could have picked El Generico versus Kevin Steen, and no one would have batted, not batted an eye there. You know, I maybe could have picked um, El Generico versus Kota Ibushi, mm. and people wouldn't have a problem with that. Or Cena and Generico versus the Briscoes, or Cena and Generico versus um, the American Wolves. Like, there's so many angles that I could pick for him, but the one that stands out in my mind is this um, feud against Adrian Neville from 2014. And the main thing is, for so much of his career... Sami Zayn was in a character that was almost a comedy figure. Right. Like, the El Generico character is goofy. It's silly. It's a Canadian white dude who's being billed from Tijuana, Mexico as the generic luchador. It's a goofy character. Like, you shouldn't be able to buy into it so much. But Sami Zayn is so compelling and so sympathetic and so great at selling and making you believe in him and making you want to see him win that you buy into this comedy character essentially and he becomes one of the top acts in all of independent wrestling so once he we get that transformation when he gets signed to WWE and now he's put in a position where in the El Generico character you know they're treating him like he's Mexican and that he doesn't speak English. But when we get to WWE, he's put in a position where he has to cut promos. And people didn't think that he could, I guess, have that ability to talk so well. But this feud showed how emotive his face was, how great of a talker he was or can be when given opportunities to, and how he can carry a feud, even if it's not in the ring, through promos and segments and facial expressions, he was able to carry a feud with a guy like Adrian Neville, who, you know, he doesn't have any feuds to boast, really. He doesn't have anything you can point to as, man, that Pac feud was really great, or, man, that Adrian Neville feud was really great. Other than this, and he got the most out of a guy that people only view as someone that's um, athletic. He is an athletic guy, and that's how people view him. But um, I guess before I go on, what are some of your thoughts on a Sami Zayn Adrian Neville feud? Yeah, so when when you made this choice, I was a little surprised because yeah, to me, like Steen versus Generico is kind of that um, quintessential feud when I think of Generico Zayn. Uh, but then I started to thinking about it and unpacking it, and I, I do know. Like, kind of, for our history, as long as, uh, like, the website Place to Be Nation has been going on since 2013, I think Zane winning the title at the end of 2014 versus Neville uh, really kind of signified the importance of NXT in some ways Mm. as a brand. Um, where, Where we had had takeovers before... Um, and super shows, but that really, uh, I, I think the earlier super shows were kind of 
Um, mostly just riddled with very good work rate matches. Maybe not necessarily a lot of uh, storytelling surrounding that to a degree. Um, but when this match happened, it really packed an emotional punch. And I think part of that was just, you know, following Generico's career for however many years you had. <clears throat> but um, also part of it, I think, is they really told a great story. And I think that was kind of a catalyst for what you saw in 2015 with the uh, just the breakout of storytelling matches in NXT that kind of dominated the year-end awards, like your uh, Bailey versus Sasha Banks and stuff like that, that was was able to thrive off kind of that template that Zayn and Neville were able to present. Um, yeah, you mentioned how I guess the previous takeovers weren't as big payoff storyline heavy, right? And I guess to defend them a bit, 2014 is the year where the takeovers started. So, from January, um, I guess that, yeah, that was NXT TakeOver Arrival that had um, Zayn versus Cesaro. Um, Which, fair, that, I mean, I guess that was kind of the blow-off to their feud, yeah, right? Yeah to, yeah, to their feud that had, you know, been going on since Zayn, like, debuted in the company. Like, that was the feud that was going on there. And... Honestly, Zayn versus Cesaro is the feud that put NXT on, like in people's radars. I mean, the two out of three falls match is the first time in my time following NXT where I saw people who aren't actively following developmental were like, oh man, this is really good. This is the WWE match of the year. And it happened in Full Sail University before all of these things that would happen three years later take, took place. Yeah, that, that I mean that match made me parachute in. I'll fully admit that. Like <laughs> up up to that point, uh, FCW and and NXT was something that was fun to read about in the Observer, or you know, oh hey, you know Cassius Ono faced Seth Rollins. Oh okay, that seems you know. Let me check this out every once in a while. But but yeah, that the two out of three falls match was something that made me kind of sit up and take notice and say. You know, this isn't just going to be kind of a developmental and what I kind of think in the sense of a developmental. Like, this isn't just going to be, hey, let's work on our promos. Let's do an eight-minute TV match to make sure we're facing the right direction. Uh, these are going to be bona fide great matches that tell a great story. Yeah, and, like, as someone that... it's a, Like, it was a like habit of mine. Like, I just used to watch... FCW shows whenever they popped up on YouTube and I was following NXT like from the moment they rebranded FCW to NXT like I was following along with it so it's just something that I was always intrigued by and you're right as soon as Cesaro versus Zayn happened in two out of three falls it was like okay that's not what developmental's for so there's something bigger going on here right yeah. like we like you don't get like the WWE match of the year in some in in the, in the developmental territory, that just doesn't happen. So, it's something that I always view it as the starting point of NXT as we know it now. And the basis of the Adrian Neville versus Sami Zayn feud is that pretty much it was built as Sami Zayn can't win the big one. He didn't win his feud feud against Cesaro. He couldn't beat Tyler Breeze for the number one contendership. 
He lost the Fatal 4-Way title match, um, I guess, two takeovers after this. He had got two more title matches against Adrian Neville that he lost. And Sami Zayn is reaching his breaking point. For the longest time, he had been the smiling, happy baby face who, ah, shucks, I didn't win, but I'll get him next time. That kind of baby face. But it starts to wear on him. And you see it in his face every time he loses. He gets more and more dejected and more and more overwhelmed by the fact that he just can't get it done. And the reason why it weighs so much more in this feud with Neville is that Neville is a guy that he's known, you know, if you know their backstory, for literally nine or ten years at this point. If we're going past, if we're going like where they are now. If we're just going by 2014, they knew each other. You know, well past, you know, five years, dating back to their indie days. So they've known each other for a very long time. These are legitimate friends, and they played off of that well. Where Neville is someone that developed a killer instinct, or will do whatever it takes to win. Neville had pulled the referee out of the ring in the Fatal 4-Way match, when Sami Zayn had the match won. He faked an injury to his ankle to steal a win from Sami. He had become... Someone where he was, you know, kind of doing underhanded things. And Sammy just had a breaking point. And the one moment that I remember before this match happened, I think it was the go-home promo. And Sammy's talking about how he'll retire. And then Adrian Neville comes out where I don't want to be the one responsible for you retiring. And then Sammy just flips. And he slaps Neville across the face And he says, you don't get to end me. I'm the only one that decides this. And it's passionate. It's fiery. It's emotional. And you can just feel the intensity from Sammy just reverberating through the crowd. Because we had genuinely never seen him at this point before. Where he slapped somebody and stormed off. He's usually calm, cool, and collected. But we see this slowly cracking psyche of Sammy where he's just not the same guy he was when he um, came in. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that, that's something I can't think of, uh, haven't thought about, to be honest, that much. But that's so true. Like, And that's a wonderful bit of storytelling when that comes off. Um, again, kind of like what depths within yourself will you reach? Uh, to kind of gain your ultimate goal like how how low will you sink and that's i I think that's something everybody kind of fights with internally so it's it's easily relatable i mean i I think in every situation uh pretty much in life at least some point your moral compass is going to be brought into question uh where you have a decision to make on uh what you're willing to do to advance yourself either in your career your social status or whatnot um, and kind of how you do that is it's something you you really have to be comfortable with both the uh, the the accolades and also the consequences that will result from that. And Sammy does the most tussling with his inner self or his demons once we get to the big match, which is NXT Takeover Our Evolution. Right. And to me. Obviously, last year, we got 
the four horsewomen stuff with Bailey getting her big moment and things like that where if someone said that's my favorite NXT match of all time or the Iron Woman match is my favorite NXT match of all time I'm not going to argue with you you know those are legitimate picks and I understand why but for me as someone that had followed Zayn for so long and he's one of my favorite wrestlers ever like this just meant so much more to me because this is the same show where Kevin Steen slash Kevin Owens debuted he opened the show and he's crying when he goes when he like um walks through the curtain um <laughs> and then this is also the show where Finn Balorum debuted um I guess will be the Dean body paint so there's some memorable things that happen on this show but the most memorable is Sami Zayn versus Neville and once we get to the closing stretch of this match, Neville is going for the title, you know, trying to cheat. Once the ref, once a ref bump happens, Sami Zayn avoids it, and then Sami Zayn kind of picks up the title and looks at it and tries to decide whether or not he'll use the title. And this is when Corey Graves, who I believe had just started doing commentary, like, maybe even this show, he just started doing it. I'm not sure if it was Graves or Riley that was calling this match. But they're saying, come on, Sammy, do it. And Sammy puts the title down. And then whoever it was says, Sammy Zayn deserves to lose this match. Because he has no killer instinct. He decided he, that he wasn't going to do whatever it took to win. And then Sammy actually catches an oncoming Neville um, with the Exploder into the corner. And then he sets up for the Haluva kick. And it's an amazing visual. When he's in the corner and his eyes are just dead set on Neville. And then he just wipes his face. And then, like, I guess all the worries and all the doubt. He kind of symbolically just takes it all away. And then he goes in for the last Haluva kick and finishes off Neville. And I just think that's, you know, storytelling at its finest. And... Actually, a reason why production in wrestling is so important sometimes, where if you don't have that camera shot of Sami Zayn just, you know, taking his hand and wiping it across his face, I really don't think it, come ac- it comes across as, I guess, um, important as it did. Like, that's the money shot, really. That's the thing that I remember the most when I think about this match. Yeah, I, I uh, rewatched this match today. Um, and I, I knew I liked it when it happened uh, live, but I uh, I undershot it on my initial viewing. I've got I got so much like enrichment this time uh, with kind of the uh, I guess basically kind of the story within the story of Sami Zayn and himself. Um, I, I I just thought that it was a majestic performance by him in particular. Uh, kind of in that internal battle throughout himself. And yeah, uh, the final moments, you know, WWE does those kind of big emotional pull at the heartstring moments. Um, and, I, and sometimes I don't think they land quite as well as they would hope. Um, I'm sorry, I love you. Yeah, that's like kind of like, that would be the first comparison to make because that's, yeah. you know, something that, you know. <laughs> It's pretty much the exact same shot, right? Uh, you know, so, up, you know up, like up close in Sean's face, and he mouths the words, "I'm sorry, I love you." Right. And you know, 
I actually don't have a problem with it, but I understand why people do. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I ate it as much as some other people have, for argument's sake, but uh, it, it certainly felt like a more... I, I guess, how can I explain? Like, that moment felt like if you were submitting a, 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 a spot to the to the wrestling Emmys, you know, like that type of moment. Like, oh, here's my stand-up and clap moment that you're going to remember by where... Um, I mean this this uh this facial expression and the wiping of face, like you said with Zane, it's it's not nuanced, and it's not subtle. Um, really, it's it's blatant. Yeah, like the camera's right on his face. Like you, like they know what the point is there, and you know that's why I love it so much. Like it's not like they're trying to be subtle. It's a thing where Sami Zayn is you know clearly you know cleansing himself of all of his worries and all of his doubt, and. It just comes across as someone that's finally at peace. Someone that finally got what they were trying to achieve all this time. Right. Right. It's it's kind of the confirmation that, you know, you can reach the top doing it this particular way. Yes. Um, which, which is great. And I actually love the Huluva kick as the move that it offsets because while, you know, a, a technically legal move... It's a very vicious kick that yeah. he's running full speed at somebody's head. So it it is it does show kind of a viciousness in Sami Zayn's kind of metal way. I mean he's he's a wrestler that's gonna do things the quote unquote the right way, but he's not seen as a wimp or, you know, a lesser wrestler because of that, because he can have some of this brutal offense. Yeah, and like when you mentioned that Another example would be, um, I'm sure if you've watched it, Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens from Battleground from this year. Right. And in that finish, Sami hits one haluva kick, and then Kevin Owens, you know, falls in his arms. And he's looking at Kevin, because obviously that's someone he has a lot of history with. He's looking at him, like, in the commentary, he's like, maybe it's one last bit of compassion for his best friend. And nope, Sami Zayn props him right back up in that corner and delivers one more haluva yeah, kick. Yeah. It's like, you know, and you're right, Sami, even though he does things his own way, it doesn't mean he's some kind of punk or pushover. He, like, he'll still kick your head off. And that was, I guess, a definitive moment. One thing that I loved about how they ended this, and once Sami Zayn wins, obviously it's a big deal. Confetti's falling. Kevin Owens is the first one in the ring to hug him when he wins. Um, people are holding him on their sh- people are holding him like on their shoulders. It's a big deal. The crowd is chanting "Olay" to a song, and it's an amazing, amazing emotional emotional moment. But they don't just end it there on the happy ending. They kind of use Neville and the closure in that feud to bounce off into the Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn feud where Sammy and Kevin are walking back. Sammy has a shoulder on Kevin because he just went through a grueling battle. He needs help getting to the back. And then Kevin just spikes his head into the um, ramp and powerbombs him on the apron. And from there, we went right in to another very emotional story. And I just like the way that they just like didn't rest on their um, laurels, that they actually did something risky 
And even though Sami Zayn had finally accomplished this thing that he's been wanting for so long, you know, he's kind of getting fucked over again. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... They they essentially did a modern version of the WrestleWar '89 angle, um, where you know Flair beats Steamboat and then is attacked by Terry Pile Driven on the uh, table. Um, this is essentially this, but uh, and and this is also a very neat case study in uh, viewer manipulation because every visual cue uh, that you can think of that a show is over. If you're a longtime viewer, they did here. Oh yeah, like the um, like the little um closing credit <sighs> right, in the, right. in the, the left cre- hand corner. The credits come up, the confetti, you know, the, the rings full. The, the, so. com- the commentary is done talking. Right, know? right. So every uh, you know, it's it's almost Walking Deadish, and how how manipulative you can be to the viewer uh, while it still feels rewarding. Um, but but. I, I, I mean, I think that should be used sparingly, but in this instance, it was perfect uh, and really worked it and really just showed how much of a dick Kevin Owens is. I mean, like he that what better introduction for this type of character that not only is he just a complete, you know, douchebag heel, but he, he's willing to lead you along as far as he possibly can and string you out as long as he can only to you know rip your heart out at the very last moment um yeah like we just really great stuff yeah like you know like you just took the audience on this emotional journey where Sami Zayn reaches this goal reaches the mountaintop and then after all that joy and celebration you're brought back down and I it really was just a phenomenal way of you know Toying with the audience's emotions, but not going too far into, I guess, alienating them. Because you got to be careful sometimes where it's doing something like that, where the top babyface finally gets his moment, where the babyface where the crowd is 100% behind them, you know, ruining that like that right, could be detrimental. But I don't think that was in this case. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think... Honestly, I think the reason this didn't emotionally connect with me the way it did when I watched it first um, was honestly the Daniel Bryan factor Yeah, in some way. Because, I, you know, I went to WrestleMania 30 live. Um, I, I think that's probably the best wrestling show I've ever been to uh, in my life. And I, I remember, like, the phone call. Uh, I was in my car going back to my hotel room. Uh, where me and my wife were going on a family vacation the next day afterwards, and I had to call Brad and Justin from uh, Place to Be Nation. Like, we, I had to get them on the phone to talk about the show. And just the overall excitement, it, it, it felt like leaving that building that, you know, you were seeing the next superstar. Like, it felt like our WrestleMania 14 where... Here now, Daniel Bryan has made it, and he's gonna be the uh, the new star for the future for WWE. Um, so by this time in December, you know, of course, he'd been out of action for a while, and uh, I, I was kind of at a down point for the company as a whole, and that uh, probably unfairly floated over into the NXT. But we are watching it now in retrospect. It was. It was really great, and it probably would have been in my top ten 
of the uh, Voices of Wrestling uh, year-end polling. I, I didn't vote for it at the time, but yeah. I think I would vote for it now. Yeah, if I was even doing that stuff at the time, it honestly probably would have been my number one. Right. When I think about 2014, yeah, that yeah probably would have been my number one on that list. But I can understand that because you gave so much emotion to Daniel Bryan, and then you kind of see what happened after that. That, you know, that kind of took a toll on you. But yeah, someone that, you know, I watched the Daniel Bryan stuff in real time. Obviously, I watched this in real time. And I guess for me, even though I love Bryan so much, I think he's the best wrestler ever. I, you know, think the guy is amazing. It just felt like Sami Zayn finally getting his big moment, even if NXT is on a much smaller scale. Even if this was just in full sail Florida, that you know, I thought it was, you know, great. I thought it was like on that same level, just based on emotional investment. And yeah, I think that was just great stuff. I mean, so now that you've gone back and watched it, is there anything that you would point out about why I just clicked with you more this time, or was it, or was it just basically per- like personal that you know? the Daniel Bryan thing was just wearing on you. I think it was the personal, but um, I think it was Zane's performance in general. I, I did think he brought more depth when I was watching the match today than uh, I thought previously. <clears throat> um, and, and I guess I was going to ask you, like, what do you think about Neville throughout this feud? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, because... I, I, <laughs> Uh, I I don't want to downplay him by saying he's a secondary character because right. I think in the in the and especially the match he serves a purpose. Yeah, and he does that well. But I certainly think there's limitations for Neville in my mind overall. Yeah. Um. But but on kind of as a as a tip of the cap to this match again, I think this is about the peak of Neville as a performer. Uh, what we saw in this match because we saw kind of his amazing athleticism but then I, I mean I guess I would categorize Neville's storytelling is probably going to be an adequate at best mm. or replacement level that's just me personally uh, you may view him higher but um, that, that's kind of where I was at and in this match he did give that to me so when you had the superb performance of Zane, it kind of elevated the entire package overall. So I, I, I don't want that to, that may seem harsher on Neville than I'm kind of meaning, but I do think this was kind of the Sammy Zane opus in a lot of ways. Like this was his taxi driver um, as a, as a performance. Uh, and, and Neville was just kind of there to play a role, which he did play well. Um, I don't know, that's tough, really, because, obviously because, like, you know, anyone that's noticed is, like, the bulk of this discussion has been about how great Sami Zayn was, and we didn't even talk about Neville. So, in that way, you can see that maybe his performance, you know, definitely isn't on that same level, but at the same time, I'm not sure this story works with anyone that's not Neville. (laughs) Because you have that backstory with Zayn, with them, you know, having prior history of being friends and Neville knowing his backstory he was kind of a, he was a clean cut baby face too before this story arc started where Neville was the one to the throne Bo Dallas and 
Neville, you know, his reign wasn't that good, you know, before we get to this stuff. But, you know, he's a clean-cut babyface. And then once this starts, you see him kind of getting desperate. And I think that does actually give, you know, depth to his character, like you argued for Sammy, that we see him kind of doing more underhanded things and doing things that aren't becoming of a champion that is, um, I guess, as wholesome as as Neville was at one point, where he's feigning injuries and suckering Sammy in so he can sneak away a win. And I think he did a good job at that. Now, I don't think he was an amazing heel or anything. I think he actually did a really good job at being cocky. Mm-hmm. Like, say, one of the reasons why I think Ricochet is so good now, because I think Ricochet is really good at being a cocky prick. Like, even if there is not a depth to his character, I think he's as good as anybody at being a cocky prick because he's athletic, he's a show-off, he can do all these amazing things and you can't stop him from doing it. I think Neville kind of had the same thing going on where in this match he's, you know, doing his flip reversals and he kind of does the finger wag at Sammy like, no, 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 no. Like, you're not going to get that on me. So I think, you know, even though Neville wasn't on Sammy's level and it was the Sammy Zayn show, uh, I think calling him replaceable may be a little bit harsh. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that can go back to the Steamboat Flare analogy. Like, if you think of their 89 feud, it may be... Uh easiest to think of flair first and foremost but 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 steamboat added a lot there and i I do think i mean in just this match i did think neville added to it um he certainly wasn't a distractor but i i guess for me when i was watching this it was kind of like if i had to rank sammy's performance it was like a plus and neville was maybe like a b B plus for me. Yeah, that's fair. Something around there. Uh, so, so again, good. But in some ways, I did think like uh, this may be Neville's ceiling to me because I, I I haven't felt this much emotional investment in a match he's had since, unless I'm totally blanking on something. Oh no, you're you know you're right. That's what I'm like. That's what I actually think this is. I'm not sure this is Sami Zayn's peak. I'm like I'm. It's close. But I, I I think Sami still has more to give depending on what the company does with him yeah i I think he'll get opportunities just because but and i but i mean who knows (laughs) you never know but with neville that's like clearly like the best match i've ever seen him have like ever whether it be pwg or a british indie or dragon gate whatever that is the best match i've ever seen from him so yeah in a way while the performance is maybe like Sami Zayn's opus. I mean, if we were going with film analogies, this is still, you know, the best movie Neville's been a part of. Right, right. So, yeah. Um, the second feud you picked, we mentioned it earlier, How you, why you chose it over um, Kawada versus Masawa, but Kenta Gabashi versus Misawa Masawa. So, um, if you could explain a little bit more why you thought this um, feud and the story they told over the you know span of, I mean, wh- where did you where did you um leave it off? Because you were, you cause first because at first you went to like two thousand seven. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, because like when when Kobashi comes back from cancer, he the tag and falls Masawa and all that stuff. But but I really think the feud ends when two thousand three 
when he wins the uh, GHC championship, um, the March 1st match. Uh, I, I think that's a fair point to say. This is the the end of their feud, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and now, when it starts, I think is an interesting question because they do have their first singles match in 1990. And uh, just as a point of disclosure, I watched all of their matches, singles matches today. Uh, last night, I couldn't sleep. Woke up at 2 a.m. Went on a whirlwind where I watched about five hours straight of Masawa and Kabashi. I uh, was kind of punch drunk by the end of that experience. <laughs> uh, but it, it was pretty cool to do that because I'd never watched them in that chronological order that quick together. Um, it'd been a lot of kind of plowing through the years and jumping around here and there and watching other stuff in between. Uh, so that was interesting. So yeah, I mean, their first singles match is in 1990. Um... But but I, I can kind of just quickly go over that. Like, their their first matches from 1990 to, I'll say, 1995, their first Triple Crown match in October 1995, carry a same template. Uh, Kabashi is very athletic. They have a more athletic tone. Masawa does some of his Tiger Mask stuff. There's some kind of parody where it's more of a sense of, oh, you know, hey, Kabashi's actually hanging with this guy. But Masawa is kind of a, a cut above uh, fairly easily, and he usually wins relatively easy in about 15 to 20 minutes is what those matches go. Um, so then from 1995, when they have their first Triple Crown match, to 2003, when they have their last singles championship match, uh, the, feud, the feud really transitions into a much uh, deeper issue in my mind. I guess what would the, what exactly would you say that deeper issue is because that's you're saying like the singles matches but that's not mentioning um I guess their work as a tag team right they were tag team partners and I mean I'll just say this as an aside that I thought you know Kabashi was actually like the best Masawa tag team partner I thought those two when they were tagging together were like a really really um fun team to watch where they just complemented each other so well in a way where yeah, Kabashi isn't on Masawa's level where Masawa is the guy, but they're both like so damn athletic that when, say, when Masawa does his flip over the ropes and then Kabashi follows up with his shoulder block off the apron, you know, right. it just comes across so perfectly. Yeah, and I think, uh, I guess, uh, Kabashi's emotional kind of demeanor is a good uh, counterpoint to the stoicism of Masawa yeah. as well. Um, so, so I think what tr- happens is not that far different from what happens when Masawa and Kawada break up, actually, where you see this instance of them drifting away, um, Kabashi slowly g- gaining confidence, and uh, kind of eventually thinking, no, you know, I am equal to you, uh, Masawa, and I have to prove that in the ring. Um, so, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start by discussing the uh, October 95 match. Because I, I, in watching these matches chronologically, I never realized how important this match was. I, this is a match that I, I remember back reading when Death Valley Driver did their 1990s polling in 2000. I remember JDW, John D. Williams, 
uh, kind of critiquing this match. So, so this was a match like when I was first getting into Puro tapes in 2001. I was kind of like, well, should I pick this one up or not? Because some people are a little less on this match than others. Uh, I got it. I liked it. I thought, oh, this is a great match. But I always kind of had it in that, you know, great four star range until this morning. Um, so, so to me, the thing that kind of works for this match is the kind of backdrop to the whole feud is you see a couple of things that really take over the feud from this point forth. One is we see some arm work for the first time. So their first few matches didn't have really any extended, uh, limb work in them, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but we do see that here. The second is this is the first match that teases an apron spot, which if you know anything about Masawa and Kabashi, <laughs> uh, it's kind of synonymous that the apron spot kind of becomes their go-to uh, later down the road. Um, and uh, And there was just a couple of instances in this match that were really interesting that we didn't see before since, like at one point, uh, Kabashi goes, he hits one of his moonsaults regularly, and then Masawa is rolling away, uh, kind of on his knees, and this plays into the finish, so he's rolling away on his knees, but he's in a position to where, uh, you know, his back is elevated, like he has his knees and his hands on the mat, uh, and Kabashi just says fuck it, and gives him a moonsault with him in that position. Uh, which is a crazy-looking spot of Kabashi just kind of throwing, you know, all carelessness out the window, um, throwing caution to the wind and doing whatever it takes. But it actually cost him, which, again, becomes a recurring theme that, you know, Kabashi may be on Masawa's level, but that mental toughness and that overzealousness really gets the best of him at some points. And that's what happens here where uh, Kabashi is in big trouble after that move, does more damage to himself, um, and then Masawa's able to kind of really demolish him after that and pick up the victory, uh, which was which was an interesting thing. And he does use the Tiger Driver 91 uh, to finish him in that match, which is also interesting because by 1995, he was pulling that out more... Uh, on more rare occurrences. So he did have to uh, dip into his bag to use that to defeat him in 1995. Um, but but then, I, I mean, to me, the, this match, this feud as a whole kind of comes to a head with January 20th, 1997, and that Triple Crown match. They have a match in the Carnival on uh, 3-31-1996, which is more wrestle-oriented. It adds a couple of little quirks if you watch them all chronologically. Uh, but is not that integral to the feud overall. Um, but like I said, then we go to January 20th, 1997, which um, I was going to ask you what you think of that match overall. I mean, this is a match that carries a huge reputation. Um, which one did you say again? This is the uh, January 20th, 1997 one. It's the one in Osaka where Kabashi comes in as the champion so essentially where uh, Kabashi kicks out of the Tiger Driver 91 
at the end, and uh, Masawa is able to take over with the elbow, but mm-hmm. over the course of the match, Masawa's elbow is really worked over. Yeah. Um, so, so you have some absolutely, to me, groundbreaking storytelling within the match. Um, but yeah, the, 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 I'll, I'll just say for me, this was the second Puro match I ever watched. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was the January 1999 Masawa and Kawada match, which I enjoyed, but I, I don't think I quite got it. Uh, when I watched this match the first time, when I was 15 or 16, this was something where I got it immediately. And from that point forward, it's kind of like, oh, this has been my favorite match of all time. And, yeah, watching it this morning, that kind of confirmed that, yeah, this still is my favorite match of all time. I think it's the best match of all time yeah, uh, in my mind. And it's just, it, to me, this is really where King's Road kind of came to a head, where there's a lot of great spots here. There's a lot of head dropping um, if you hear Kabashi kicks out of a Tiger Driver 91, you may cringe a little bit and think, oh, that may be taking it a little too far. But I do think within the confines of the story they were telling, it, it works. Um, and it's just that, that the selling that Masawa does on his arm, I think, is so well done. And Kabashi, too, because Masawa ends up destroying Kabashi's arm, too. So I just thought uh, there, there's, a, there's a sequence about 35 minutes into this match where they're both trying to kind of regain to their feet. And the match kind of reaches that primal level uh, for me, which is always when I realize like a match is, even of the five-star matches, this match has went a uh, level beyond, like into the upper echelon of those matches. Uh, and it there's always kind of a sense of embarrassment that I feel for the competitors. That's always the telltale sign where I I start to think to myself, you know, whoever loses this match, it's going to really affect them. Yeah. This is something that's going to stick with you. Like both of these guys have gone too far to lose, but somebody has to lose. And that's the, that's the reason I really love Magnum versus Tully. Uh, I quit cage because I get that same kind of uh, sense of embarrassment and urgency like when you put every single egg you have into this one basket and yet you still come up on the losing end uh, it's, it's a heartbreaking approach yeah I'm not one of those people that like um, I guess can name off all Japan dates off the top of their head so I had to think for a second about which match you were talking about but yeah I love this match actually you nailed every point about why i liked it i'm not sure there's actually my favorite all japan match ever or one of my favorite matches ever like if i made a top 10 it's probably in my favorite all japan matches but um for some reason the kabashi masawa story never resonated with me emotionally as much as other stuff may have like say off the top of my head the Akira Tawe versus Masawa stuff from 1995. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that resonated with me emotionally a lot because Tawe was the bottom guy, and, like, Tawe's having this miracle run. You know, this right. year, he's going toe-to-toe with Masawa. He's not looking out of place. He's, like, he knows he has to take it to Masawa if, if he has any chance of winning this match or winning these matches. And I 
think the story told there is brilliant. Or say, like, we mentioned the Kawada versus Masawa, where even though you said that there's, like, a similar dynamic in Kabashi versus Masawa, where Kabashi wants to prove himself against the top guy, I feel like Kawada was, like, more bitter. Like, Kawada's mad that he wasn't given these opportunities. Kawada's mad that he's the one that got to face Jumbo, and he's the one that is, like, the golden boy. This dude that he went to school with, and he is just uber bitter about it. So, off the top of my head, those are, like, stories that resonated with me more. Or even, like, Jun Akiyama, when he gets put into the fold. And um, he's teaming with Masawa and facing um, Kawada and Tawe. And it's this young punk, or not even really young. He's like three years into his career once we hit 1996. Mm-hmm. But he's in here, and you know he's clearly out of place. Like he's the young guy, he's the young gun, and if anyone's getting is gonna, if anyone's getting worked over in that match, is going to be Junakiyama, and Junakiyama has to hold on and fight and not be the weak link. So those are stories off the top of my head that resonated with me more, but. Still, I loved the match, and the main thing that I loved about it, like you said, um, was the selling from both guys. And I think it's a good contrast, because Kabashi is known for being over-the-top and the most theatrical of the All Japan guys, right. where Masawa is closer to the stoic edge, excuse me, and Kawada's like in the middle. So it's a good contrast to have the guys that are extremes on both ends of the spectrum turning in great performances, you know, selling the same limb. Right. Yeah, I, um, I, I guess I, uh, oh, I a lot to unpack there. So I, I think, to me, the reason, um, and I wanted to get into this, the reason I do prefer Masawa and Kabashi is, to me, Masawa and Kawada, like, if you say you like June 3rd, 1994, better than uh, the 120-1997 Masawa-Kabashi match, fine by me. I mean, they're they're very close. That's actually, mind. like, the one of the first Puro matches I can ever remember seeing. So it's like, right. there's, like, a similar thing there. Right, so I, I think those are kind of the two apexes of the respective Masawa and Kawada and Masawa and Kabashi feuds. Um, where I tend to prefer Masawa and Kabashi is I really feel like Masawa and Kawada regressed a good bit. Um, I like their 1995 match, which is kind of very compact. Um, the Triple Crown match, it comes off the uh, the great tag where Mas- Kawada gets his first pinfall on Masawa. Um it's a very compact match. I really enjoy that one. But then they have a Triple Crown match in 1997, which I think is really where uh, All Japan kind of stuttered into too much head drop territory to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas you compare that to, I also want to talk about the 98-99 Masawa and Kabashi matches. Uh, they had one on Halloween, which is kind of uh, appropriate. It's an anniversary coming up. Uh, so 10-31-1998 is the next, uh, I'd say, well, they had they actually had a triple crown match, uh, Masao and Kabashi, in October of 97. And that's an interesting match because it's kind of like they just had this big epic in January, and they hit on some similar themes uh, in the October 97 match. 
but it's a little more compact, a little tighter overall. I don't think it's as good a match, but it's an interesting contrast to watch. Um, and one quick thing I, I wanted to mention just watching this today is I didn't realize how much Okada and Tanahashi follow the same template. Oh, I thought, oh, well, that's actually a great point because I feel like that was almost like clear in some ways. Like, even though it's like a different story of Okada being the young gun, um, taking on Tanahashi has been established, you know, for over 10 plus years when Okada returns. Yeah, I think it actually does follow a lot of the same tactics. Right. E- even the match structure is 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 very interesting because if you think about Okada and Tanahashi, like uh, I think Invasion Attack 2013 is kind of which is my favorite match of that series. Right, I, th- I think history has kind of shown that's sort of the 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 apex of that feud. Um, one Wrestling Observer match of the year, blah blah blah. Um, uh, it, it's kind of the most renowned. So after that, what happened? They had a 30-minute draw in the carnival that year. Well, after the January 1997 Triple Crown match, uh, Masawa and Kobashi did have a carnival, uh, and I may have said carnival earlier. I mean G1 Climax. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Masawa and Kobashi had a carnival round-robin match, uh, but it didn't make tape. So they come to the final night tied, and what happens? They have a 30-minute draw. Um, So same parallel. And then they have the October Triple Crown match in October 97 that parallels to the October 2013 King of Pro Wrestling match where, you know, they've had this great epic match. They have to change the template a good bit. So, for Masawa and Kabashi, it was a more kind of tighter time frame and stuff like that. And uh, Kabashi starting hot in the match. Whereas, in Tanahashi and Okada, it was Tanahashi showing more heel mannerisms. Um, So, it was very interesting how that kind of paralleled each other. And then, I think, uh, as you'll see, the matches are more epic in uh, structure much like the two Wrestle Kingdom matches for Okada and Tanahashi are um, as well. So so the the, uh, the October 1998 match is, is interesting. I think some people probably don't like it very much at all. It's a match I see some, a good bit of flaws in it. There's a sequence in it where Kobashi gives two backdrop drivers and Masawa just kind of casually kicks out in the middle of the match, which is sort of odd. Um, and then it's also the match where Masawa gives the Tiger Driver to Kabashi uh, in the final moments, but the match still goes like six or seven minutes after that, yeah. which I know drives some people nuts. Uh, but but I got to say, like to me, the match absolutely is like dangling off the edge of excess, but it never reaches it. Um, because of the way the feud as a whole was structured. Because in the feud as a whole, like I said, uh, it's kind of been worked in a way where Kabashi is kind of getting in some offense on Masawa. And it's like, oh, you know, this this you know chip off the old block. You know, he's kind of gaining some ground. He's catching Masawa a little bit off guard. Here we go. In this match, Masawa is dominated. Like, unlike any other Triple Crown match I can think of that he's been in, 
even more dominated like in the matches versus Jumbo where he was the young boy. He's completely dominated in this match. Kabashi, I would say, takes about 80% of the offense. Uh, so that's why I like the Tiger Driver off the apron spot because to me it felt like that was all Masawa had. Yeah, like, desperation. E- even his trusty elbow was failing him. Like he had to pull out something he'd never done before. And here it was, this Tiger Driver off the apron. Uh, so that's why I think that match is like brilliant. It's also a match I get five stars to. Uh, and fully admit it has flaws in it, but just that took it over the top for me. Um, and, to, and to get back to an earlier point you were saying about kind of the rivalry that Kawada and Masawa had compared to Kabashia and Masawa, um, I kind of liken it to a tennis comparison which is sort of odd, but um, I, I really see Kawada and Masawa as like a John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors type rivalry of kind of brethren that are kind of intensely intertwined. And <clears throat> in some ways, like Jimmy Connors was just never going to be the man, so to speak, to a degree because of how charismatic McEnroe was naturally. Um, and I sort of feel that way, not on the charisma standpoint, but with Kawada and Masawa. And that may honestly be why it doesn't resonate with me quite as much as other people, is I just feel like, you know, Masa- Kawada was always going to be the number two. And that's a crappy situation. I understand how that would create sympathy for other viewers, like more sympathy and investment in their feud, that he realizes that. Um but to me, I always see like uh, Masawa and Kabashi is like a Federer and Nadal situation. Okay. Where it really, you know, you just were waiting on that moment, like Wimbledon 2008, where Nadal overtook Federer and became the guy, the okay. face of the sport. All right, so if I think I, fo- if I follow along with what you're saying, okay. that pretty much it felt like more competitive. Uh, well, I guess I would phrase it as Kabashi and Masawa felt like Kabashi was always striving for something better. And then eventually he got it. Right. But with Kawada, even though he did get pins on Masawa, it felt like a guy that was, you know, he knew his fate pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Like even, even when he wins in the Tokyo dome, like that's like the blow off. <laughs> like that, that when when Kawada pins Masawa in the Tokyo Dome in 1998, it's almost like that's the victory lap. It's not oh we're entering a new era of New Japan or of all Japan because he actually loses the title the very next month to Kobashi, which is kind of odd. Um, so so that's kind of where we're at. Um, so the only other two matches I'd like to talk about for the for Masawa and Kobashi is the June 1999 Triple Crown defense. And this is actually where I think storytelling goes awry a little bit. So I am critical of this match. I think this match starts out with some really great mat work. I think this match has some excellent sequences buried in it. But I do think this match has too much excess. There's half nails and suplexes on the floor... 
there's you'd seen a gradual sense of escalation that I hope I've been able to convey where Kabashi was getting a little bit of offense in, you know, in the October 2000, uh, 1995 match. Masawa had to use the Tiger Driver 91 to defeat him. You know, Kabashi kicks out of the Tiger Driver 91 in the January 97 match. So Masawa has to go back to his running forearm smash, his trusty elbow. Uh, and then in the October 1998 match, again, Kobashi kicks out of the Tiger Driver 91. Um, Asawa goes for the running elbow smash, and it gets thwarted by Kobashi. So you see that escalation growing, growing, growing. And I think they betray it a little bit here. So while I think this is a, still a great match, the June 1999 match, it's a very complicated match, and the flaws kind of outweigh it and it's where they needed to ground their storytelling uh better in some ways um another oh god there's so many arguments a little vague sorry um but you know how on the june 1994 there's the argument that kawada should have beat masawa in that match yeah um where do you stand on that well, because I'm a big Kawada sympathizer, I would yeah. say, like, you know, of course I would like to see Kawada win at some point, and that se- it would seem like a time to, like, you know, even them up. So as the years go by, it doesn't seem so lopsided. Right. But, you know, I get why, and it's part of the reason why I do love the Kawada-Masawa feud so much. And it's because I just fe- you just feel the bitterness in resentment just building up in Kawada so much like at, right after he loses that match i think that's when he go he becomes a full scale dick like i think once like the holy demon army forms and after that once we get the june 9th 95 match okay. um and okay. things like that like we see Kawada like he almost breaks <clears throat> like he is taking cheap shots every chance he gets he's a complete jerk and really the only definitive heel in all Japan in some respects where Kabashi is the clear white meat fiery baby face and Masawa he has a reputation for being the stoic and Tawei his role is weird and some some people think he's along for the ride I think his role is that he is kind of the odd man out but with Kawada I think his role is being bitter. I think his role is just being so angry and resentful towards Masawa. So in some ways, like I don't think it's a problem that he lost. Cause I think that, you know, goes to the ultimate story of Kawada versus Masawa as a whole. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I go either way on that match, honestly, like who should have and could have won. Um, but I will say, I think Kobashi should have won this uh october 1998 match i'm pretty confident of that uh excuse me especially after what i see what they did in the june 99 match um so so then there's kind of this weird break in the series where they have a champions carnival match in april of 2000 and again that's a misfire that's a very good match very fun but masawa uh, gets pinned by kabashi which we see on tape in their first singles match. He's pinned, uh, which is kind of anticlimactic. Then you have the split with Noah. Then Kabashi was out for all of 2001 with injury. 
so so you end up getting you know kind of the Kabashi rehabilitation story throughout 2002 and that sets up their final encounter where Masawa comes in as the GHC champion and Kabashi uh, is the challenger and you really see a changing of the guard moment here and Kabashi is finally able to not get overzealous. He has that one tool in his bag, which is the burning hammer, which, say what you will, about excess and head dropping and the all-Japan style that carried over to Noah. The one thing that I think is pretty indefensible and pretty amazing is the burning hammer. I think it's only been brought out like eight or nine times. It's never been kicked out of. Uh, when well, Kabashi's yeah, performed, yeah, it. at least when about to say, at least when Kabashi's when Kabashi's it. performed it, so it's it's this ironclad, absolutely, you know, stone cold locked move, and the echelon and hierarchy of Noah uh, mythos. So so that to me is amazing. Um, it's an amazing moment. And this is where kind of the cherry on top of the storytelling, because like I said, the, the Kawada Triple Crown win versus Masawa is a very nice moment and a culmination. This is a true changing of the guard moment. And that's what brings the storytelling for me full circle, because I try to think in wrestling history of matches where you you see that true changing of the guard and you see two aces that were both that successful, the one incoming and the one outgoing. Um, and it's very rare to me. Like I, I was hoping maybe I've kind of pounced this on you, but I was hoping if you could think of any examples, one I came up with was Harley race and Ric Flair and yeah. Starcade 83. Um, I think, both of those guys have come to that legendary status where you could see that kind of clear uh, lineage of, okay, Harley was the man, and after that, Flair was the man. And Harley, you know, it's not like Harley died, but he was never the man after that moment. And um, really, Kabashi was the man after that moment. Even, you know, when he had cancer and stuff like that, Masawa had GHC title reigns kind of begrudgingly. We know what the end of Masawa's life, how that happened, um, but but I still felt like Kabashi was still the guy after that March 2003 match, and I feel that's so rare in wrestling history from like 1980 onward. Um, off the top of my head, and it's not on the same scale, but there are definitely circumstances that lead to it. But when Steve Austin beat Shawn Michaels. Yes, that was one I also thought of. And I agree with that in the uh, kind of the the way of, um, I guess, in the way of WWE logic with that. Um, I'm a little, I, I, I thought about that one. I'm a little less, um, I guess I'm a little less encouraging of that one, only because of two things. One, Sean was gone for four years. Yeah, after that, you're about to say it, but that is an actual, like, that's kind of what I was getting to, whether, um, like, in a real changing of the guard scenario, because the changing of the guard happened because of, you know, kind of, you know, tragic circumstances where the right. guy blew out his back that badly that he had to go. 
But my thinking was that either way, that was a changing of the guard where they relied on Sean so much for so many things. Mm-hmm. And that after that, you know, you have to rely on Austin for it. So that was my thinking there. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that one. I mean, I think it remains to be seen with Okada and Tanahashi with this year, 2016's Wrestle Kingdom uh, main event. But I, I think that could be that type of moment. Yeah. Um, I, I think that has a good chance to do that. Uh, the, the argument against that, and I say this as someone that loves the feud and think all-time in the ring, it's you know, a great feud. But the, thing, the problem with Okada versus Tanahashi is that the f- first title win you know, comes so abruptly and yes. it's such a shock to the system that it didn't really feel like a changing of the guard because he dropped the belt right back to Tanahashi. Right, in June. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so like it's hard to argue that's a changing of the guard. Yeah, it feels like there's kind of more parity in their feud because of that, really. But yeah, they you know trade they trade wins. Like, they trade the belt so much. There's no actual... You know, some people will argue, like, oh, Okada getting the big win at Wrestle Kingdom this year was Okada's big moment. Right. But, you know, the p- argument people make is... You can't replicate that first title win. That first title win has to mean something. And whether I liked whether I like it or not, that first title win is Okada, you know, kind of shocking people, and then losing the belt right back. So right, right, yeah. I mean, he was a laughing stock at Wrestle Kingdom the month before, and then he wins yeah. the title. It, it was a shock to the system. Um, and and also, I mean, fairly or unfairly, I do think. In uh, stature, as far as Japanese kind of stature, Masawa and Kabashi are bigger names, drawn more than uh, I, I think it's fair to say Tanahashi historically. Oh yeah, that's, yeah that's probably Akata. A I mean, he's still so young, so the book's not written for him. But I think we could kind of close the book essentially for Tanahashi to say he's never going to be. As historically box office proven as somebody like Masawa, uh, regardless of what you think match quality wise, how he stacks up. Um, but but yeah, so that's I mean I kind of just uh, fillerbustered a while on that, and and it's I mean it's such a well known feud. I don't think many people listening to this are going to be like you know who are those guys or <laughs> hadn't seen any of the matches, but. I, I know it's so cliche to say like all Japan nineties is the best stuff ever, but. Uh, to me, it's the best wrestling still. That it's it's my favorite era in wrestling ever. So, and that's my favorite feud. So, when you thought about storytelling, I thought, oh, okay, here's something where I hope, I hope I was able to convey a little bit that I uh, just don't think these were just athletic contests. That there was a lot of kind of enriching storytelling and a lot of escalation. Uh, behind these matches together. They weren't all hits like the June 99 match, I think, clearly shows that. And, you know, the March 2003 match, I don't think is everybody's cup of tea, but as far as, you know, this is the epic final battle where we're throwing everything we can at each other, to me it works. And uh, they never had a singles match after that. I don't count the uh, comedy Christmas 2004 whatever match they had Um. where they dress up. I guess two points. One, when you were going through the early stages of the feud, I guess when we got to, you know, Kabashi being overzealous and, you know, overdoing things to an extent, mm-hmm. it, it kind of plays into 
the Western fan narrative, like, I guess, in our bubble when it comes to Kabashi is that Kabashi, you know, is known for excess and what he does. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Like, do you think that was kind of like a weird meta psychology that the point is is that Kabashi um, is doing too much? It isn't just getting to the point? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of moments I found in watching this stuff today that I was kind of like, did they do that on purpose? Cause I don't want to be that guy that, you know, is like, oh yeah, they were back there and definitely kind of mapped that out and stuff like that. Um, but there was definitely spots and that was some of them where Kabashi was, uh, was doing that and uh there was a couple of other things where like masawa wouldn't hit a move correctly um and would kind of sell the damage of his arm and you'd be like oh well, was that a botch or was that him just you know what, what was going on there but and, and then he would he would kind of grip his arm and look down and then he would hit the move like viciously uh, again, which to me says that he did that on purpose. Yeah. Um, either that, or he's a great improv actor. One or the other. Uh, but but yeah, there was some kind of some of that meta stuff for sure. Especially Kobashi outside with the apron. I mean, he just kept like in in a couple of the matches, like he would have the match won, and then he would lose it all on the apron. And that and that's that's really what happened. I mean, even in uh, the the January nineteen ninety seven match, the the really the tide turning in that match is Kabashi goes for a uh, a power bomb from the apron to the floor, and Masawa's able to hit a Rana uh, on Kabashi, sending him to the floor. And from that moment on, you know, Kabashi's done. And in the October 98 match, like I said, Masawa had to reach down and hit the Tiger Driver. And from that moment on, Kabashi's kind of done. Uh, so so it was interesting to watch that. And that's why I was kind of disappointed in the June 1999 match where he's just doing a half Nelson suplex on Masawa on the floor. Uh, it kind of didn't build that up. But that's what makes, to me, the March 2003 match where he is able to hit the apron spot effectively... Uh, that that kind of makes all that previous stuff pay off because finally he's able to capitalize and then like I said he has the burning hammer to put Masala away for the last time um, the next thing was do you think their last match the 2003 match is maybe the best what you would call epic match yeah ever like would like would you throw that in that pantheon of you know, obviously there's some differences in what constitutes as an epic match in different regions of the world. So, for say, the United States, an epic match to a lot of people is Magnum versus Tully in the cage. In Mexico, an epic match is MS1 versus Sangre Chicana from 1983. Right. Um, so, in Japan or worldwide, do you think that Masawa versus Kabashi match is the best example of a true epic in wrestling um i i I think from a complete blow-off sense it's up there uh man that's so tough um when me and par did our top 100 matches 
I know that match was right around Magnum and Tully for me. They were like <laughs> one one apart from each other. I think I'd still have Magnum and Tully slightly ahead, but it's so close. I, I would say I think the 2003 match has a good case of being my favorite match of the 2000s. Um, when I watched it today, I, I didn't feel uh, kind of compelled to move off that talking point for me. And in, in some ways, I mean, it's an epic match, but it's like, to me, like it's the best WrestleMania match ever. <laughs> that's that's kind of yeah, what I want to compare it to. Yeah, that's kind of what I was like going to say, too, because yeah. when I mentioned epic matches, I didn't you know mention, I guess, will be WWE's version of the epic match that happens at WrestleMania. Yeah. And someone that's synonymous with doing that kind of epic match at WrestleMania is Shawn Michaels. And he had those two Undertaker matches at WrestleMania 25 and 26. And right. you can even throw in the Ric Flair match um, from 24. Yeah, 24. Yep. So just do you think is like that's in like the same vein of those epic matches? Because I know a lot of detractors of Shawn Michaels will say he has these self-aware epics. And to me, it's like, you know, you can't really fairly label Sean stuff as a self-aware epic and then not throw the same thing on, you know, the Kabashi versus Masawa from 2003. So, yeah, I would, I would say this, this, um, kind of this time period overall, we're at an interesting point, uh, in our little bubble of where now there's some, there is some kind of backlash for the first time in later era, all Japan, the Noah and kind of that self-contained epic. Um, for me, that's that's never a term I'm that comfortable with. Yeah. Because when I think about that, I think to myself like, okay, Sean and Undertaker have this long history. I mean, they wrestled in 1997. Again, so are def- we just supposed to forget that? Right. If they're if they're doing a callback to that or bringing in elements of that, that's a plus in my mind, and that may make the match more meta. That oh ha ha, well you didn't watch this match twenty years ago, so you don't get it as much as I do. But again, that kind of goes back to what we talked about at the very first part of the contest uh, of the podcast, where. You know, like if I'm able to see that 1990 match between Masawa and Kabashi, where they're both wearing different trunks, Kabashi's in red, Masawa's in his tiger mask get up, and they're out there doing like lucha spots and flying around and doing stuff like that. If I can contrast that to the final moment where Kabashi, 13 years later, is able to hit this death move, the burning hammer, and finally put away this guy and go on a 14-month GHC title reign where he carried the company and sold out Budokan so many months in a row against competition like Tamon Honda and who, you know, like great good workers but not, you know, household names, uh, then more power to it. Like, if, if they're going to be epic into that and bring in this stuff from these previous matches in a conscious manner, then I'm fine with that as long as it's presented in a fair way. It's yeah. not just we're throwing out a tombstone two minutes into the match because we can. Um, and I do think there's a difference with that. It's it's kind of a nuanced difference in your storytelling approach. But I think one way is a cheat where um, 
like in, in WrestleMania 28, to me, is the easiest example, the Hell in the Cell, where they had this template from WrestleMania 27, so they said, well, we, we know what works, so we're just going to do that at the very beginning. We're not going to try to craft any other story or add any more layers. We're just going to do this and have some melodramatic acting. Right. And in that situation, it falls flat. Here, I think they did add the new elements like Kabashi able to hit the apron spot, hitting the burning hammer, so forth. And I thought the sell job of both men still in 2003 was very well done. So I enjoyed the match. All right. I guess well, we're going to get to the last um, feud that um, we were going to talk about here. And that's Ricky Choshu. You know, invading all Japan, and the reason why I picked this, and I'm not maybe maybe you picked up on this, but the reason why I picked this Matt, I mean pick pick this feud is because it felt like the precursor to what would become King's Road. Mm-hmm. Like when Ricky Choshu invades, it feels like he brings a level of intensity that would be carried over once we get into the '90s. You know, some people may say that Jumbo versus Tenryu, once they start feuding in 87, and once it ends in 1989, that that's a precursor to King's Road. But I think that goes even further, dating back to Ricky Choshu and when he invades. And off the top of my head, I can't think about... When did Ricky Choshu come to All Japan? Was it like 85 to 86? Yeah, 85 to early 87. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so once Ricky Choshu invades, it feels like everything about the company changes. Obviously, we had been in the Jumbo era for all of this time. Jumbo had been having you know, what you would call NWA title defenses against a lot of people. You know, facing the likes of Nick Bockwinkle and Billy Robinson and Kerry Von Erich and Ric Flair and Rick Martel and even a Jim Brunzel and guys like that. Where you're having what you would, what would feel like you know a typical major title match for the AWA or NWA in the '80s. That's the style he's wrestling. But once we get Ricky Choshu, who's always had this kind of badass aura to him, even when he was you know first starting out and he's you know feuding with Fujinami, you know it feels like there's a level of danger when Ricky Choshu was there. And you can never quite put your finger on it because he looks looks kind of plain. He's not wearing knee pads. He has these white boots. You know, when you look at him, nothing should really stand out. But when you just see him walk to the ring or when you see him tie up with somebody, there's this level of intensity that no one else in Japan really had. Yeah, yeah. Ricky, Ricky Choshu has just a... Uh... A beautiful, simplistic approach. And um, he took a while, to be honest, for me to kind of get him in some ways. What um, I was about to say, like, um, what did it take you to get for Ricky, Cho- for Ricky Choshu? Like, was it that he was too simplistic for you at first? or? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I think, honestly, it was... Um, Initially, I watched a lot of his 90s stuff. Oh, okay. And it felt like, you know, here's a guy that, you know, has a lot of charisma, big, 
big with the fans for some reason, um, but is not scared to kind of lock in that scorpion and rely on that, and not a whole lot else is Lariat and the Scorpion Deathlock. Um, I, I probably really didn't fully get Choshu until I watched the uh, All Japan Death Valley Driver Best of the 80s set, to be honest. And that was in 2011. So I'd been watching Puro for 10 years. Um, and then I watched that set chronologically. And what you said couldn't have been uh, more spot on. I mean, I mean the... the uh, the years 80 through 84 and all Japan I enjoyed, but they certainly feel like besides uh, Terry Funk, once he's retired, <laughs> retired in 83, <laughs> uh, they, they certainly feel like, you know, kind of jumbo just running through the gambit of the challengers, like you mentioned, the Dick Slaters, the Mel Mascaris, Harley Race, Flair, blah, blah, blah. Really good matches, but not a lot of kind of meat there. Yeah. Uh, from a storyline perspective, uh, once Choshu entered the picture, that really changed, and then you're really able to see a hierarchy form. And uh, to me, that's when Jumbo hits that extra gear in him, where he for the uh, the first kind of decade of his career, you know, really natural performer. Um, a lot of matches I like. I know some don't like the early 80s Jumbo. I do like the early 80s Jumbo matches, but I certainly think there's a difference once Choshu enters the picture. Yeah, and you know, to speak on Jumbo, I mean, this year, I would say, is when I started to really appreciate Jumbo a lot. And it's just been recently where going back and watching like even 70s jumbo like he debuts in like 1995 i believe i mean 1975 i believe right and going there and he had a really fantastic match with like mil masqueress in 19 i mean 1977 and mil masqueress doesn't have that many great matches the most and it's you know amazing to me that jumbo got that out of him and then we do have tremendous matches against Bachwinkle and Billy Robinson. Mm-hmm. And they're great matches, but like you said, there isn't a lot of substance there. There isn't like a, like a lot of reason to care about them. They're just great matches. But once we get Choshu, and he's kind of stepping to Jumbo. Like, not even just stepping to him, he's flat out disrespecting him. And that's something that Jumbo really isn't used to. So we see this kind of subdued ace Stoic, which is a word we use for Masawa, but for Jumbo, it's even more true around this time, where Jumbo, he isn't prepared for what Choshu's bringing him. And then as the years, as the, you know, time goes on, and we see more interactions between them, you know, Jumbo's ready to fight. Jumbo isn't here to trade holds like he's doing with Nick Bockwinkle in Hawaii. He's ready to fight Ricky Choshu because he's here disrespecting him on his turf. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really kind of unique approach, and um, like you said, kind of this this can be a uh, a genesis of King's Road, but because I think with Cho- uh, the the weird thing with Jumbo is just in their age, it would seem natural that kind of he would take that torch from Baba. Yeah, like how Kabashi, you know, hypothetically was taking it from Asawa. In 2003, like, you know, the next generation stepping up. And you, you never got that 
like they they tag together and then um they they kind of just all of a sudden jumbo was the man yeah, so to there speak was, there was no definitive passing of the torch like there was from Masawa versus jumbo. right and and from this point on um once choshu is the main fool it's it's very easy to kind of trace that lineage where it goes you know, it segues from Choshu to Jumbo to Tenru to Masawa to Kawada to Kabashi to Akiyama. I mean, it's a very easy lineage to trace for the next 20 years or so. Um, and then that's very interesting, and I think a lot of credit has to be given to Choshu for bringing that different dynamic into the promotion. Yeah, um... That's something that Choshu's always had to him because, you know, when you watch the early, early um, 80s All Japan, I mean, New Japan, mm-hmm. you know, Choshu still has the same vibe. I mean, yeah. even though Choshu is a regular in New Japan, he still has the same vibe of not abiding by, you know, the company's rules. Choshu is his own man. Choshu, even though he's, you know, trained in the New Japan system, you know, he comes across as an invader. And I don't think anyone's ever played the invader role better than Ricky Shoshu because he will flip an entire promotion on its head. <laughs> and like you said, I mean, even though his run only lasted for, you know, a little less than two years, he changed the course of the promotion forever, really. Right. Like you said, you know, looking at the lineage of guys, when it goes from Choshu feuding with Jumbo to Jumbo feuding with Tenryu to... Jumbo feuding with Masawa, and then so on and so on. I don't think history really, you know, would be the same if we don't get Choshu, you know, kind of lighting a fire in all Japan. Because when Tenryu really starts to shine, and I like Tenryu, you know, when he first debuts and he's facing, you know, guys like Ted DiBiase, like, I like him during then. Mm-hmm. But even a guy like Tenryu really comes along well when... Choshu and Yatsu come along and they're having these fantastic tag matches. Like off the top of my head the um, January 28th 1986 match. You know, yeah. I think Meltzer gave that five stars. Yeah, Amazing, amazing match. And you just start to feel everyone involved. You know, just they're motivated more than I've ever seen them. Even Yoshiaki Yatsu, who I enjoy a lot. But, you know, that's clearly the best stuff he's, he's ever been a part of. And you can make a case that's, argue, that's arguably the best stuff Jumbo's ever done. You can argue the be- that's the best stuff Tenryu's ever done. You can argue that's the best best stuff Joshi's ever done. Right, yeah. I mean, it's these are... Um, I mean, Yatsu's Yatsu. But, uh, you know, Yatsu's a good gatekeeper-type wrestler in Japanese wrestling lore. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, the other three super legends. And, and I'm so glad you made that point about Tenryu. Um because, yeah, to me, this feud, like, it, it, as much as it was a changer for Jumbo, um, I really don't think Tenru was Tenru until this feud. Yeah. Uh, like like you said, this the stuff with uh, early uh, Mil Mascaris and Ted DiBiase, kind of that stuff in 82, 83, 84, even his early matches with Jumbo. They're, they're fun to see, but Tenru's kind of this... Um, He's still putting the pieces together. I would he he say. doesn't. He doesn't have that like trademark, you know, fire bonk. Yeah, yeah. Like he, you know, 
this gets them fiery, and that's like the same thing it does for Jumbo. People yeah. rave about Grumpy Jumbo once we hit 1990, and he's taking this young punk Masawa to school. But the first flashes of Grumpy Jumbo, you know, come in 1985. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I really think that... I, I really think this was a... I, I mean, I guess without this feud, I think Jumbo still would have been a, a big mainstay and main event, 1980s All Japan, and really up to he uh, contracted hepatitis. He may not be as legendary, um, probably wouldn't be, but, but still a star. Uh, but but I kind of wonder what the course of Tenry would have been, and I and I don't know. I, I don't know what would have like what his comparison would have been, but I don't think we get you know the legend Tenry, the person people are considering number one as their greatest wrestler ever, and you know that's something I wouldn't scoff at at all. Uh, that type of Tenry, if we don't have this feud, because I don't think he showed it really that much at all before this feud i mean maybe some flashes here and there but certainly not in a uh, whole cohesive feud and to me the interesting thing about the whole choshu invasion of all japan is uh the choshu tenor singles matches i like better than the choshu jumbo ones oh yeah i'd agree with that for sure you know even though i think the tag matches you know outweigh anything that any of the singles matches that happened? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the 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 tag match you spouted, as well as the rematch the next year and the rematch the next week, um, I'd, I'd say those three, if you haven't checked those out, those should be essential viewing. Yeah, I think if you like, you know, making a, you know, like the DVR, like DVDVR people did for the um, All Japan 80s. Do you know where that um, January 28th match finished? Oh, I think it might have been second. I, I can look that up real quick. Okay, but like I'm saying there is, um, yeah, I feel like this was the real turning point for Tenryu 2, and it actually does turn into another point that I was going to ask is, um, while the Ricky Choshu stuff I think was great while it lasted, once it transitions into Tenryu versus Jumbo, what do you think, um, you know, of that feud? Yeah, that feud is amazing. Um, I, that's another feud I actually prefer to Masawa and Kawada. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't argue there because I think that has some of that. That has some of those same same elements. Right, and I, I just uh, thought Tenru had more of a chance to overcome, and I think it peaked better with the uh, with the finish. Say yeah. what you will about the finish of six three. Uh, 94, but when Tenru does win in uh, the 6-5-89 match, it's a, a majestic moment. So I did look it up, and the 128-86 match finished third uh, behind Tenru and Jumbo, 6-5-89, and then the uh, 12-16-88 Real World Tag League uh, final match. Okay, yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, which I'd... is, you know, that's a historic match as well. Ah, okay. um, so, so that's kind of not a surprise those uh three matches were the top three yeah so i was saying do you think that the tenryu jumbo feud is better than what we got from the choshu invasion or do you think um the choshu invasion kind of being the starting point makes it better like what do you what do you stand there oh that's interesting yeah that's kind of like a chicken and an egg dilemma right because i I think the singles I, i mean i love that um August 87 
Jumbo and Tenru match, which is kind of like their first big singles match where they were rivals, like no longer partners. Um, that's my second favorite match of theirs. Um, and I, I love the singles matches between them, but they, they, they actually also had some really kind of underrated, uh, underrated, uh, tag matches at the very end of the decade when Tenru teams with Stan Hansen yeah. and Jumbo has Yatsu, the uh, final match of the 1989 Real World Tag League. Uh, I do think Choshu brought about a different mentality. Um, I, there's something about Choshu, like I like admitted before, I didn't quite get him, but I, but I think there's something to be stated about an invader that it's kind of that calming to a degree. Like, like it really feels like Choshu has a plan. Yeah, that he's putting into action. This doesn't feel. I, I'm, I'm again. My invasion compass is so set on like the western part of the world, with like you know the NWO cracking jokes or Kevin Sullivan being this crazy devil person. You know that's that's a maniac. But kind of those type of invasion angles where the people are just obsessed or demonic or really like off the spectrum type characters. Uh, and Choshu is so able to rile up everybody and bring out this kind of primal emotion uh, just by sort of, you know, just looking like a just, badass. Just existing, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a weird dynamic. Like, you... You're you're very scared of him, but you don't quite know why. In some ways, it's like I don't know what this guy's up to, but he's up to something. And I think it's amazing that you know, for as short as his stint was, you know, two years really isn't, you know, short. But in wrestling, that's not you know a long run. But the fact that in just a little under two years, Choshu's impact on the promotion was felt, you know, a decade later. You know, I think that just stands to how much Choshu was just a really impactful figure. And, you know, I love the guy. I think he's one of the best wrestlers ever. But, you know, I just wanted to, you know, talk about that one because I think that changes the course of King's Road. And, you know, it's actually a big part in one of the few that you picked. So that's why I went ahead with that one. Yeah. Um, oh, well,. Uh, real quick, too, a cool thing, too, about the parallel with Tenru, too, is once Tenru invades as part of war yeah. in the 90s, now Choshu is the uh, kind of the flag bearer for New Japan. Yeah. And they're able to kind of rekindle that, and it's, it's just amazing to see, uh, you know, Tenru has uh, a more kind of jerky personality compared to Choshu when he's the invader. Uh, but but that's kind of one of my favorite feuds from the 90s as well. And I think it has great storytelling. And I think knowing the framework of Choshu invading all Japan. You know, Tenryu uh, getting payback. It's yeah, not- yeah. It's it's almost like Tenryu saying, well, you created this monster. Now you got to deal with it. Um, it's It's a very interesting dynamic there. Yeah. Um, before we go ahead and sign off here, there was one question that I was thinking of because all these, well, other than Neville versus Zane, all these feuds that we named, you know, come, you know, 20 years, you know, in the case of Choshu, it comes, you know, 30 years, you know, from where we are now. So I was just asking, do you think there's any promotions 
you know, currently going on right now, do you think offer, you know, storytelling and what has kind of become a lost art in some ways? Um, if you asked me this last year, I would have been weary to say right off the top of my head there was. Um, but this year, I actually think we have seen a great development in that. Uh, CWF Mid-Atlantic, which I know you're on board with, um, that's a promotion just right. I mean, that's the first promotion I think of when I think of storytelling and wrestling current day uh, with the Trevor Lee uh, title reign. You know, how's it going end? There's still we're we're almost a year into his reign, and there's still so many uh, storylines and avenues they could go down. You have the Brad Attitude stuff going on right now. You have a rematch with uh, Andrew Everett that could happen. You have a rematch with Roy Wilkins that could happen. You have Nick Richards that you know won the right. Weaver Nick Cup, Richards, so. who has that Weaver Cup in his back pocket, and they kind of. Wink, wink, been keeping those two apart a really good bit. Yeah, they have, they <laughs> so, don't interact at all. Right, so there's, there's, I think there's something definitely going on right there. Um, and you know he has that at any time he could challenge. So you have all that. You could have an outsider. Um, I know when we had Studs on one of our podcasts previously, he was talking about like a hero versus Lee title defense in CWF Mid-Atlantic, which if that ever came about, you know, I can't even imagine (laughs) right now. Um, So so that to me is just great storytelling and a modern day wrestling concept where um, I'm sitting here right now, the guys had seven or eight title defenses and there's four or five that I can't wait. You know, then that's just in the stories that have been pretty uh, visibly presented. There's, there's other stuff, uh, you know, like the match with Jesse Adler. That came out of nowhere, and I thought it was a great match. Yeah, I love that um, match. It was really made by the storytelling. So so that's an easy promotion there. Um, I think what you and Timothy talked about in the uh, Escalation, like in Beyond and that series, I thought that was a good way to uh, tell a cohesive storytelling and uh, wrestling uh, through a series of matches. Oh, I didn't know you. Um, did you actually watch the Gresham versus Saber stuff? I did, based on y'all's recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I got I got to that last week, um, late last week. Yeah, I'd been avoiding Beyond Night on purpose. Just it was one thing I couldn't get to, but I uh, finally broke down and uh, subscribed to their service, and that was the first three things I watched. I I loved the Americana match. I thought that was excellent. Yeah, like that's like in my top five for Match of the Year. Like that's not going to go away, and I yeah. wish more people watched it. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I thought that was you know as somebody that really likes Gresham, but I, I think some of the critiques I hear about Saber, I was kind of throwing onto Gresham. Like, uh, I mean, he's definitely a great technician, but I'd like to see kind of more from a, a character or storyline standpoint, and he delivered in that series yeah. uh, to me more than he ever has. Uh, so those are just two examples that I can think of uh, right offhand. But even, you know, even like Dragon Gate. Um, I, thought, I was actually expecting that one because I know you had been getting into Dragon yeah, Gate more, the, the, more lately. Uh, this is the biggest I've been in Dragon Gate since... 
at least Blood Warriors. Um, maybe since like 2003, Italian Collection, uh, that that type of stuff. Yosino, my boy, um, and uh, Anthony W. Mori. Uh, that the, so the, so this area of Dragon Gate, I think, has been telling a lot of great storytelling. Uh, again, you're able to see progression up and down the card, uh, where you have the Linda Ma, Linda Man and uh, Santa Maria storyline that's like a decide that's a decidedly mid card issue but it feels like major league storytelling within their kind of universe uh which is excellent as well so so yeah like like i said last year i would kind of been weary and was said i i don't know i think there is definitely some regression in storytelling overall in wrestling at the sake of just having a good match or popping the crowd uh, but but this year I, I I maybe it was there last year and I just wasn't seeing it. But but this year I think there's definitely if you want to seek out storytelling and wrestling you should be able to. Yeah, and that's kind of I guess what I was like setting it up for is because I know a lot of people that say storytelling isn't there in wrestling anymore also aren't watching CWF Mid Atlantic. They're also right. not watching Dragon Gate. They're also not watching Progress, who I think, you know... In their, yeah, that's another one. <laughs> in, their, in their existence, they've done a really good job at storytelling. Maybe the best, you know, story in indie wrestling, other than Steen versus Generico, maybe ever, with the Jimmy Havoc versus Progress stuff. Right. Like, you know, I'd put that, you know, up against anything that wasn't Steen versus Generico. Um, even, you know, Dragon Gate, where I think since their existence... And since they've been spawned since the end of Toriumon, Dragon Gate has been consistently telling great stories, but because Dragon Gate has a reputation for being, you know, mindless flips and no psychology, as some would say, that people don't, you know, notice how they build things and play off of things that happened 10 years ago. I guess, off the top of my head. Do you remember the um, unit disbandment match last year between Jimmy's and um, Mad Blanky? Uh, yeah, that was the one in August, right? Yeah. Wasn't around. Yeah. Yep. So, the thing about that match in the finish was um, um, Kanas throwing the powder in, I believe, Doi's face. And the reason why that was so impactful is because before that, K-Nest used to be in a tag team with Susamu, now Jimmy Susamu. So K-Nest throwing the powder in Doi's face and ending Mad Blanky and reuniting with Susamu is a big deal. But only if you have been following Dragon Gate and know the you know backstory and history surrounding that. So I think because a lot of people, like only know Dragon Gate based off reputation or only follow Dragon Gate you know and they only know them because of the ROH six man tag or something Right. that you know they don't realize how long and how much effort and the callbacks that Dragon Gate will make you know for the sake of their storytelling like even sacrifice even like you know doing storytelling sacrificing match quality sometimes yeah, yeah, that's kind of that's that's interesting because that's again one of the, sort of the unfortunate because I would assume when they first made their mark in uh, Ring of Honor, I mean that that's what 
got their name out there to a, a larger audience. But that was, I mean, that was a showcase match done on a insanely great executed level. Um, it wasn't kind of the type of storyline intertwined match that you're going to see from like a unit disband. I mean, that, that February uh, unit disband match that we had this year was just so enriched. And, and I actually think I prefer the October one. I, oh, I know God. some people. I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I actually, uh, yeah, I can actually see that because it was them bringing back the Captain Falls stipulation, right, which I right. love. and. Which, which is not as confusing as you think. Exactly. Because I got to say, I was a little weary going into that match, uh, thinking it was going to be a little confusing, but it wasn't at all and had so many good kind of callbacks just from watching this year, like uh, like Shingo just being a complete bully to Sajiacho boy and... Uh, uh, you had uh, Kodaka coming out and I guess turning on Berserk and Shingo throwing the chair in the back and chasing him out of Kurikin. So just a uh, a great storyline match and kind of like what we talked about with Owens uh, and Zayn at the end of that match. They really kick-started the next big kind of storyline for Dragon Gate at the end of that match and it was shocking. Um, with the Doi and uh, Shingo stuff. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a good place to end the debut episode here on the Pro Wrestling Only um, Network. Um, Chad, I want to thank you a lot for um, giving me some credibility on my first episode here. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I, I love the show. Love the first three episodes. I hope uh, this is a worthy addition to the canon. Um, so any um, plugs that you want to get out the way before we sign off here? Uh, just do two quick plugs. Uh, one, where the big boys play. I don't know when our next... Well, actually, we're planning on doing the... Uh, it'll be the New Japan WCW Super Show from 1-4-1993. We're planning on doing that in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that. And then every Friday on PlaceToBeNation.com, we're doing the uh, Match of the Week Club, which is a feature I really enjoy. Um has kind of a, quite a uh, quite a collection of individuals contributing on a weekend basis. So you have uh, Timothy from Lucha Undead. You have uh, Lawrence O'Brien. You have uh, Stephen Graham. Uh, you have Brad Woodling. I know he'll kill me if I don't give him a plug because he said I didn't last time. So there you go, Brad. I'm giving you the push now. Uh, Glenn Butler, just a, just a unique uh, individual, and then also a couple of guys, uh, and Peter Saladino and Ian Morse. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but but these are two guys, Quentin, that uh, mostly post on Blog of Doom, hmm. Scott Key's blog. Uh, don't really utilize Twitter that much, but yet they watch a ton of like New Japan and other stuff. Uh, so, so I find it fascinating that like you do have these kind of hardcore of the hardcore fans in these other pockets, uh, because I do know sometimes it feels like there's kind of the same 20 to 25 people on Twitter just talking to each other all the time. Um, I get that feeling every once in a while. So it's good to hear from a different perspective too. All right. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. Um, going forward, this is going to be a monthly show. 
So it gives me a lot of time to prepare and be able to really dive into something. This is a show I care about a lot. So I want to be able to give like my focus um, to psychology is dead whenever I do it. Because, you know, for the premise of this show, you have to be able to pay attention and point out little things that make you enjoy what you're talking about. So doing the monthly concept gives me way more than enough time to be able to do that. Um, I still do stuff for WrestlingWithWords.com. Um, I'm going to have an article about Zack Sabre Jr. coming out, hopefully in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that. Um, I also host a Presa as Lucha over on the Wrestling With Words Audio Network there, so you can listen to that. Um, and that's about it. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're here next time. Somebody hit me the other day for a rendezvous. Was it the bitch that fucked the good and the dungeon crew? Let's say her name is Susie Screw, cause she screwed a lot. Making a nigga hit that chunk at legitimate spots. Not no parks, back seats, and things of that nature. Had to hate your player. I'm digging the hoe down, never said I'm hater. Straight later, slayed the bitch like Darth Vader. Made her from Collie Park and Fed, all the way down to the hater. Like Jada, her whip was sharp and sporty, that was shouty. Saving the snake on eggs and a beam of 840. It's foggy. I went to the crib to call her, but she lost me. My baby mama beat me, 7 o'clock is gonna cost me, but I still wanna cut her dope. Maybe she had to work. I called her in the mall, wearing a real tight skirt. She was fine as fuck I wanted to sex the hoe up She said, let's hit the parking lot So I can sick your duck I said, cool I really wanted to cut you But this will do I gotta pick up my daughter Plus my baby mama beat me too She said she understood And everything was kosher I gave her a little wheel CD And a fucking poster It's like that now It's like that now You better go Get the hoe Up out your bag now It's about four Five cats off in my leg now We just shoot Game in the form of story raps now it's like that now, it's like that now Now Susie Screw had a partner named Sasha Sasha Thumper. Thumper. I remember her number like the summer When her and Susie, yeah, they threw a slump